We're brought to you today by Inside Tracker. The path to better health isn't rocket science, but it is health science. While general principles can guide all of us, there really is no one-size-fits-all plan when it comes to truly optimizing your unique biology, which is why I believe Inside Tracker is so valuable and important. Whether you want to improve your heart health, your cognition, metabolism, sleep, stress levels, or just overall health span, Inside Tracker reveals the very specific exact areas of your health that need improvement through comprehensive blood testing, DNA analysis, sleep and fitness tracker data, and your current daily habits. You can't improve what you don't measure. You can't best what you don't test. And Inside Tracker gives you the tools, the knowledge, the insights, and the guidance to just level up across the board. So get on it, because for something as valuable as your health, there's no reason to leave anything to chance. So stop playing guessing games when it comes to your health and longevity. Save 25% on all Inside Tracker tests with the code RICHROLL at insidetracker.com slash richroll. That's insidetracker.com slash richroll. I get a ton of DMs asking about my shades, my spectacles, and the answer is always the same, and it boils down to four letters, R-O-K-A, ROCA. Founded by two of my Stanford swimming compadres from back in the day, ROCAs are designed by athletes for athletes with groovy styles for everything from the bike to the boardroom. It's basically every kind of eyewear for any and all conditions without the dork factor. All their optics are top tier. All their frames are flyweight light. None of them will ever slip down your nose, no matter how much you drip. And they've got style options for miles. Sunnies, formal eyeglasses, prescriptions, progressives. It's all in there. I rock the Hamiltons during the day. I've got them in tortoise. I've got them in matte black. I've got them in clear. On the bike and on the trail, it's the Torinos for me. And uh, aviators when I'm on the go, traveling, or behind the wheel. Roka rules. And right now, you can check out Roka's eyewear lineup and feel the difference for yourself. Unlock 20% off your order with the code RICHROLL at roka.com. That's R-O-K-A dot com. Up top real quick, suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation is a topic that comes up. So for anyone who is suffering, I wanna say that help is available. Please reach out. A list of resources can be found in the show notes to the episode at richroll.com. So check that out. It's really simple. I basically don't trust anything in reality. Not authority, not my mind, not my perception, nothing. I just trust data and numbers. And the only thing I believe in is I don't want to die. Brian Johnson is a successful entrepreneur who has spent every minute of the last three years entirely devoted to not just slowing the aging process, but actually reversing it. What if I tried to become the best in history at not dying? The world champion of not dying. Yeah. Project Blueprint involves a large team of medical experts, costs him $2 million annually, and reliably provokes the ire and suspicion of others. I'm usually the most unrelatable person at the table. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> we think we have choice. We think we have optionality. We don't. 
we are up against survival. Do you believe that there's a possibility that you won't die? Yes. Unquestionably. A bit of forewarning before we dive in, however. Brian is not without controversy. There's controversy around what he's doing, around Project Blueprint itself. There's also controversy around his personal life. Some of that controversy is certainly earned, some perhaps not. Either way, there does remain something undoubtedly fascinating about this guy that led me to wanting to better understand both him but more importantly, the why behind this mission. And I wanted to do it firsthand. And this conversation, which was recorded way back in early November, is nothing if not unique. It's one I entreat you to receive with an open mind. And one I believe is gonna leave you thinking a little bit differently, not just about aging, but about humanity's place in a future hard to imagine that is far sooner upon us than we wish to believe. So nice to meet you, Brian. Thank you for doing this. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I wanna begin this by saying something upfront, which is a bit of an admission on my part. I think that my original kind of relationship to what you were doing was a little judgmental. Mm. It was based solely on clickbait, headlines that I would see without reading the articles, without really devoting an adequate amount of time to truly understand what you were doing. And I think that left me maybe not dismissive, but sort of not that interested. Mm. And the more that I've learned about you, the more I've come to really appreciate what you're trying to do and also appreciate the extent to which I think you're misunderstood and judged in the way that maybe I was judging you, all of which leads to today, because I really, I really want to truly understand what you're up to, because I think on face value, it might appear as somewhat of a vanity project, but there's a lot more hmm. going on here. So why don't we begin with your t-shirt? It says, don't die. That obviously has an obvious meaning on its face, but for you, that means something much more. Yeah. First, thank you. That's <clears throat> magnanimous of you to be that transparent. Well, it's the least I can do. <laughs> if I expect you to open up, the least I can do is admit, you know, my own vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's the most common experience of those getting to know me. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. My reading of history is that most of us are born into this world and we never really understand the systems we're born into. So, for example, I was born into a deeply religious community. It was the singular reality I had mm -hmm. of existence in everyone in my community. I was in a fishbowl. I had no idea I was in a fishbowl until I was 21 years old. And so it makes me wonder how many of the fishbowls I'm in. And that's what I've been trying to do my entire life is trying to understand where my perception takes me, what I can't see, and... I think the default state for humans is we live in fishbowls. We don't understand what we don't know. And this endeavor is pretty different to everything else going on in the world. And I think when that happens, the propensity is just a knee-jerk reaction to reject it. So I, don't, I can't speak for everyone on this, but yeah, it's been pretty uh, ferocious in our response. It's not been a lackadaisical thing. It's been, yeah, it's been ferocious. Hmm. 
I have noticed that you've become somewhat adept at uh, <laughs> at tackling the critics, though, and you seem to be having fun with it. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen an evolution in how you communicate publicly with respect to that. Rather than avoid it, you're kind of confronting it head on and doing it in a playful way. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the key is that most people feel strangled by adversity and by critics. They feel like that's something that dunks them under the water and that will somehow defeat them. And they are more apprehensive to take on trolls. And it's really counterintuitive. The best strategy is to always say yes and. If somebody makes fun of you, yes and. Mm. Someone makes a dig at you, yes and. And it's so counterintuitive because you want to defend yourself. That's what you want to do and you want to make the counterpoints. It's a losing strategy every single time. You never win. And so lean into it. And you then take away the power of those who are trying to do it, and you just play. It creates an environment where your ideas and your endeavors can thrive. Well, I think anytime anybody is trying to do something new or different or somebody like yourself is uh, you know, putting themselves out there very openly, publicly, and transparently in an effort to do something no one has ever done before, not only to extend your lifespan, but perhaps even reverse your biological age, you're going to open yourself up to a lot of criticism. Yeah. That's to be expected, of course. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's perhaps the most audacious goal in the history of humanity. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as somebody who has a history of being an ultra-endurance athlete, I have a lot of respect for anyone who's willing to flirt with the outer edges of human possibility. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen, even in recent years in my own little subculture of ultra-endurance, some you know massive gains in terms of what humans are capable of athletically mm -hmm. or what they're able to endure. It wasn't that long ago when people thought running a marathon was the furthest anybody could possibly yeah. run. They wouldn't even let women do it until recent decades because they thought it would be too harmful to them. And now, 100-mile races are selling out. Mm -hmm. You know, my friend Harvey Lewis just ran 450 miles over like 96 hours without barely sleeping. So there is a ceiling being raised in terms of receptivity to yeah. human capability. Yeah. But we are locked into this idea around the inevitability mm -hmm. of our aging. And so I want to give you the opportunity to kind of let's just, you know, basically define our terms here so people yeah. who don't know who you are mm -hmm. and don't know what you're up to can kind of understand the goals that you have set for yourself. Yeah, okay. I'll first say, all right, when, when you and I woke up today, okay, let me ask you this question. What is your number one priority today? Number one, not number two. Actually, let's say number zero. Number zero priority, not even number one. Zero priority, uh, hmm. The zero thing that has to be done above all. Well, I have to survive the day. I have to live, right? But I don't think about that. Exactly. So your zeroth principle goal every single second is to not die. So you inhale air as mm -hmm. an effort to not die. You Then you do other things like you look both ways before you cross the street. You throw out moldy food. You wear a seatbelt. So all day long, that is your, your, your zeroth principle goal to not sure, die. Sure, but I wouldn't say that I devote a lot of conscious resources to the idea of surviving the day. Exactly. So it's not top of mind uh, because in our daily lives, we play this game every day and we do things incrementally to get better at it. So for example, when it's discovered that getting hit and run over by a car 
uh, produces death, it spreads throughout the human race that this is a bad thing to do, and therefore we create these habits of looking both ways across the street, we have lights, we have stop signs. So we create these mechanisms and systems to say, how do we not die as a society? So society is built around this concept of don't die. And based upon that principle, I had did this thought experiment. When I was 21 years old, I should back up a little bit, I came back from Ecuador, I was a missionary there, and I had been living among extreme poverty and dirt floors, mud huts, and it was such a shocking experience that I had come from this middle-class family in the United States. You know, like my mom made my clothes for me. We didn't have a ton of money, but like still, I wasn't. we were not fighting for basics on a daily basis. I came back and I was really questioning my reality on every level. And the only thing I could make sense of is that I wanted to spend my life trying to improve the human race in a meaningful way. I had no idea what that meant. I wasn't good at anything. I wasn't a standout in anything. So I thought I'll just make a whole bunch of money by age of 30 and then with money, go out and do something interesting. So lucky me, I sold Brentree Venmo for $800 million. On the eve of that, I thought, okay, now I'm flush with cash. What do I do? And so now you have this basically unlimited option space. You can do anything in the world with the amount of money I had. What do you do? And it's such a challenging thought process. Did you find yourself indulging in your wealth and, and kind of playing that out to see if that would, you know, resolve any existential crisis that you might be having <laughs> at the time? I did a few things. I, I really enjoy outdoor adventure. And so I did some dog sledding across the, uh, of Sweden. I did some racing in the deserts of Morocco. I did some Iceland adventure. So I kind of did some outdoor stuff, but outside of that, no, I really yeah, didn't. You didn't buy a Bugatti and no. a private jet or anything like that. <laughs> I did get my pilot's license and I started flying airplanes, okay. but for functional reasons. Uh, money has never really been anything that really interests me. It's Yeah, it's, it's really not a priority for me. So economics no longer being a factor in your life, this desire or, or kind of compulsion to do good or advance humanity is pretty open-ended. Like yeah. how do you then take your life and your copious resources and point them in a direction that's going to fulfill that sense of purpose that you have? The choices are endless. Yeah. So how do you arrive at this idea of health span extension? The first thought I had, it came back to when I was 21 years old, discovering that I was in a bubble in this religious bubble that I'd grown up, this reality had been created for me. We should just say, I mean, you grew up in a Mormon community. Yeah. Very indoctrinated in that religion. That's right. Mormonism is not a chill religion. Right. It's all consuming for your reality. Were you in Salt Lake or were you in like a smaller? A small town. Small, yeah. It's yeah. more intense the further yeah. you get away from Salt Lake. Yeah, exactly. And you know, everyone in my community, there were 30,000 people in my town. I don't remember knowing a single non-Mormon. They were probably there. I just didn't know them. So everyone shared a singular understanding of existence. And you have the rules. So it's like, it's kind of like this thing where the religion says, here's the rule set. And if you play by them, you get this eternal life that's, spectac that's spectacular. All you have to do is play by the rules. So as a kid, it's like, that's a pretty good deal, right? I can obey rules. I can do that. Mm -hmm. You then become part of this culture and you forget you're playing the game. You just are the rules. It's very hard to identify that you're actually in the game. So when did that begin to fracture for you? So I served a mission uh, in Ecuador, which even hardened my beliefs even more. And then I came back and I was 21 years old. And even on the mission, I started for the first time really thinking about the religion because before it was more of a cultural thing of I was embedded in the community, it was more of a practice. And there you're deep in the doctrine. And I started asking questions like, this doesn't make any sense. Like how, how do I reconcile this? But the challenge was, 
like half my brain was intellectually engaged in that and half my brain was emotionally engaged with what I had done. And I was of a split brain. It was very hard for me to discern what I really thought and felt about it. The religion largely talks about how you feel about a given thing that God communicates via this emotional language. Like you feel, you know, the Holy Spirit in doing these things. So it's very confusing because you're trying to deduce like what is truth? How do I discern truth? Mm-hmm. Is it a logic train? Is it an emotion train? And then you have to reconcile those two things and you have to then say, I only believe in logic. That's the only way I can derive any kind of objective view of the world. And then there's this emotional cloud that's like, but really, is there such a thing as intuition and emotion and other ways to receive truth? And so as a, as a kid trying to parse reality, especially when you've been in that your entire life, it's very hard to understand what is really going on. Hmm. So when did that begin to open up for you? Like, was there a specific event or set of circumstances where you began to feel like you needed to put some space between you and this doctrine? Yeah, I read a biography of Joseph Smith, the founding prophet of Mormonism, uh, Rough Stone Rolling. And I think it was written by a member of the church. So a a historian, I think at Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And it was a historically accurate account of Joseph Smith. And it was the first time I learned the true history of the Mormon church. Because when you grow up into it, you get this washed up version of these, this clean cut set of events where like you have good guys and bad guys. And you read the history and it's, boy, it's complicated mm-hmm. and it's not clear cut. And so I read that and I thought, this is really weird because I've trusted these people my whole life to tell me the truth at any cost. Like I trust you to act in my best interest. And I read this, I thought, wait a second, this is not a relationship of integrity. I would have expected you to tell me exactly what happened so I could parse this myself, not clean up the whole thing and give me some version. My trust started decaying in the institution. Like, I can't trust you to tell me things anymore because you have an agenda to tell me things a certain way. Mm. And it just started falling apart from there. Yeah, that must have been confusing. (laughs) It's excruciating. There's one thing that's abundantly clear with the Mormon church and these Mormon communities, uh, which is that if you are to break ranks or Mm -hmm. part ways uh, with the faith, you're risking your connection with that community. Like there's a lot at stake. There's a a gigantic social cost Mm -hmm. that comes with deciding that you no longer want to participate. Yeah, this has been really relevant in recent years. So uh, I had three children with a woman that was Mormon, still is Mormon. We separated, and at the time, my oldest son was, I think, 10. Is that Talmadge? Uh, Jefferson. Uh-huh. Yeah, all very young. And in that moment, it kind of replayed my childhood, where my father left the church very early on. I was three, and he was on his way out. But growing up, he was always painted by the community as a bad guy, a guy who couldn't be trusted. He was on the outside of the community the devil must surely be whispering in his ear. He must surely be my greatest threat of pulling me outside. And so he was always held at arm's length. Now, my father didn't help himself by some of the things he did where like, he could have put himself in a better spot. Still, he was other, and he was outside the trust circle. Mm. And so when that happened, the same thing happened to my children where I became other. There I was, like having devoted... 10 years of my life to try to be the very best dad I could. I was super attentive. I mean, I was really devoted to be a good father. The event happens, and now my kids are wondering, is dad okay? Is, is dad a good guy or a bad guy? And it caused this rift by, you know, probably like six or seven years 
where the kids were like, I don't know, and they didn't trust me when they were mm-hmm. with me. It was all this, uh, there was this tension. We got along really well. My kids and I, we've never actually gotten into a fight. We, we get it along really, really well. But there was just this tension where they could never cross to fully engage with me again that they could trust me. Now, Talmadge, uh, my, my middle child, when he was 16 years old, he left his mother's house and came to live with me to be like, hey, I'm with you, dad, let's go. So he made the transition. But with the other two kids, like it's still kind of this mixed thing where I, I almost lost them as children, you know, where it's like, I can't be their father in a way where I could before. Mm. Yeah, that has to be additionally painful. You, despite your best efforts to be such a good dad, repeating a pattern mm-hmm. that your dad did and whatever pain that that must have caused you as a young child, confusion about your relationship with your dad. And your dad struggled, right? Like he, he did, yeah. had substance issues and mm-hmm. all kinds of things, right? He did. Which makes for a bit of a confusing childhood. You yeah. know, and I, I'm trying to tie a relationship between the experience you had as a young person in the church with your father, you know, being painted in a certain way and then out of the house and having his struggles to the mission that you're on now. And I have to believe on some level, there was some trauma that Mm -hmm. you suffered as a result of this. And typically when there's chaos like that, there's an impulse in the traumatized person to want to exert control over their life, right? Because they're used to being things being out of out of control. So it would make sense that you're living a life that is so, I mean, to say your life is regimented is to completely underestimate the the manner in which you, you know, pursue each day. But is it fair to say that there must be some connection between those two things? Like I'm trying to understand yeah. part of the motivation for how and why you live the way that you yeah. do. So my perception of myself, which I give very little weight to. You know, like you can observe me probably much more clearly than I can observe myself. Mm. So having said that, my perception is that my upbringing taught me to not trust anything. The authorities that I trusted with my soul failed me. My community failed me. Now, their responsibility was not to help me acquire awareness of all possible realities, of different religions, of different ways of being, of a history. Mm -hmm. That was not their objective. Their objective was to keep me in the fold with this singular understanding. That said, it led me to to distrust all authority. And then the second beat, which I think is relevant, is when I was 24 years old, I became chronically depressed. I got married. We had a new baby. I was building a startup full-time. I wasn't getting much sleep. And I think the stress and the relationship and all that kind of stuff just kind of broke me for a little bit and I didn't take care of it and I just sunk into this dark depression. And in that moment, you know, my brain is now squawking, life is not worth living, uh, everything's terrible, you should probably end your life. And those who've had depression just knows this is just on repeat. Like it just pummels you every second of every day with these thoughts about ending your life. And so I genuinely am empathetic to people who commit suicide Like I've been there, I've been to that very edge. So at this point, I'm coming from distrust of authority in my life. At this point, I don't trust my mind. Like my mind is telling me to end my life, but when it tells me to do other things, why do I trust it? So now I think, how can I trust anything in reality? Including your own mind. Including my own mind. Nothing my mind says am I going to believe. Certainly we all filter reality through a lens of perception. Yeah. 
and we convince ourselves that what we're perceiving is is truth. Yeah. When in fact, you have a more kind of well-honed appreciation for the fact that perception is opinion at best, right? <laughs> at best. <laughs> we can't trust what we're being told. We can't necessarily trust what our mind is telling us. Yeah. And extrapolating upon that gets into this whole very interesting notion that you have, which I agree with, which is this culture of addiction from the very first moment yeah. that we're born. We're exposed to impulses and marketing messages and temptations incessantly throughout our life, every single moment of every single day, luring us into habits and behaviors and beliefs that not only don't serve us, but are orthogonal to our well-being. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So elaborate on that a yeah. little bit. One day I read this book, The Economics of Life by Gary Becker. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist from the University of Chicago. And he did a series of essays for, I think, Newsweek. And he explained social phenomena in mathematical terms. So he'd take a topic like religion, and normally you'd go about explaining religion with a story. But he would just say numerically, here's how you understand it. This is also made popular by Freakonomics, where you take and you look at the numbers behind. Mm -hmm. So he exposed this world of math and models and equations. And it was one of the most spectacular experiences of my entire life because my entire reality before was story. This person did this thing in this way and you feel this emotion and you make this perception and then you do this thing. And now he's saying, numerically, you can understand reality. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So I'm coming from this little teeny town. I don't meet an engineer until I'm like 22 years old. I don't have a computer. I have no access to technology or the world of engineering. So this discovery that you can understand the world numerically is just like this mind-blowing experience for me. Mm. So I go to the University of Chicago. I study there and I fully appreciate this way of understanding the world. And as I've gone about my life, this is how I get to don't die. It's really simple. I basically don't trust anything in reality. Not authority, not my mind, not my perception, nothing. I just trust data and numbers. And the only thing I believe in is I don't want to die. Outside of that, you know, like <laughs> I'll go play around and like say this and that. But if I really try to say like, what, what can I distill my existence down to? I enjoy being alive right now. And I don't want to be dead in five minutes. I don't want to be dead in 10 minutes. I don't want to be dead tonight. Now, what's going to happen 100 years from now? I don't know. But that's what I've really tried to do because otherwise life is just so messy. It's so hard to understand what's really going on. It's hard to understand what to do. It's hard to understand how to resolve conflict. It's just, it's just messy and it's chaotic. And so I tried to distill this down into in this moment in time in 2023, and this goes back to the, what I was trying to do for, for the species. If you ask this singular question, you can do, you, <laughs> you can do one thing with your existence and you try to up-level the human race or, or make a contribution to the human race, what do you do? And that's what I just spent 10 years trying to figure out. Mm. To go from the Mormon church with its doctrine around the afterlife uh, to a place of making data and numbers your godhead is is quite a transition, right? Like I'm, yeah. I can't help but wonder, <laughs> like, what is the nature of your relationship with spirituality? Is that a thing? Because I think for for 
all of your fidelity to to data sets, you are a deeply emotional person. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you didn't have this connection to the future of humanity. And if you thought nothing else matters except what is happening right now, then why would you devote your life towards advancing something that perhaps you're not going to reap the benefit from? Yeah. I guess uh, school never really made sense to me because the class was so slow. The teacher's monologue was so slow. The idea of memorizing information and regurgitation just didn't appeal to me. I hated school. It was just the worst. I would have rather be home and read a dozen books in the same time frame. And once I freed myself from school, I set out and I just read every biography I could get my hands on. I enjoyed the process of looking back through the centuries and looking at individuals in their time and place, the 14th century, the 15th, 16th, you know, even before AD, and trying to evaluate what did they do in their time and place? What did they see that no mm-hmm. one else could see? And how did they do it? Like, what was the dominant cultural trends in their time? What were the ideas that were novel? What were the ideas being rejected? And I built this relationship with historical figures where I cared more about being friends with them than I cared about being friends with people in the present. Because most people in the present were playing games that I didn't really care about. You know, it, it's largely about social signaling and status, everything that plays in this in this moment. But 99% of what happens right now is going to be lost to history. That's true for the past. When you look at the 15th century, our history books only capture, you know, less than 1% of all the events that happen. Everything else is washed away. I liked the idea of doing something that would contribute to this continuous stream of contribution for the human race. And so I built this relationship along this time span. And so even looking forward, I feel more committed to or connected with intelligence of the 25th century than I do right now. I care more about what they're going to say of me than what people say of me now. Because it takes time for history to kind of distill what happens to me, that's the game I want to play. Those are the people I think about when contemplating what to do. It's more than first principles thinking. You have this proclivity for having a bird's eye, 10,000 foot view. Like your timeline is longer, your altitude is higher. And that requires not only a deeper way of thinking, uh, but also perhaps a divergent way of thinking, right? Like you do think differently. There is something maybe slightly neurodivergent about how you view the world. Do you have awareness around that? Is that, <laughs> is that fair? Is that, is that accurate, do you uh, think? It's such a fun question. You know, my experience of reality is when I engage with other people, you know, I observe like what you're doing is nuts. You know, like I, it's like insane to me. And then their perception of me is like, hey, are you maybe aware you may be a bit neurodivergent? And so there's this Mm. swapping of perception. And there's this default where when you use the word neurodivergent, it encumbers that person to be like, that person is odd. Therefore, maybe slightly uh, like they get discounted a little bit versus the norm. And so there's this perception game going on where... I view the world as literally insane, but I know people view me as like, huh, that's a bit different. I'm not quite sure what to think about that. 
I don't mean the word neurodivergent in a pejorative way. I truly mean it in the purest sense of somebody who is seeing things differently and thinking about them differently. Yeah. So, and I think you do. And, and I think the world is insane, <laughs> but we're so inoculated. Yeah. You know, we're so indoctrinated into these norms that it's very difficult to even identify them, let alone challenge them. Yeah, so my comment was nothing about the way you were using the term. Mm-hmm. I'm saying generally, when I hear people talking about neurodivergence, yeah, I get that. It's always with a, just a slightly pejorative tinge. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Right? It's, it's always <laughs> like it's just a slight yeah. knock of like you know, but we'll be nice to them anyways. It just has this cultural phenomenon in conversation. So yes, I'm absolutely aware of this. I have full self-awareness of the situation. Mm-hmm. I go to dinner with friends, right? And and I hear everyone talking and I'm like, whoa, I really am so different in how I think. So definitely have the self-awareness. Also, I think that <laughs> this is the attribute that I see most common in the biographies I read. These individuals throughout history, they were able to structure their ways of thought in ways that were unique. They were able to see the world differently, able to act differently, able to rise above the norms and status quo and expectations of their time and place. And this is why I say I feel so much more connected to people of the past and my imaginations of people in the future. I feel at home on this spectra and why I feel almost alien in this time and place because when I do my things, we've seen this. It creates this vitriol where it's like, we're not sure if we want to welcome you to our polite society. Like, we're not sure. Like, we actually want to dunk mm-hmm. on you. We want to push you away and we want to criticize you. We want to lower your status by saying the meanest things we can. I mean, that's really what's been happening is if you look at the volume of trash talk of me, it's meaningful. And you know, people are having fun with it, which is great. I'm having fun with it too. But it's also, it's as humans play power games, they're trying to take me down a notch. Mm-hmm. They're trying to reduce my power. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp because nutrition, sleep, and exercise, all good, but alone, it's not a cure-all for everything. True well-being is even more holistic, which means being proactive about your mental health before you face a crisis, which is fundamentally why I've been in therapy consistently for close to 30 years at this point, a non-negotiable tool in my belt to maintain my emotional sobriety, confront my blind spots, resolve past traumas, and just work through the many challenges that life inevitably confronts all of us with. I can't say enough about how much therapy has done for me, which is why I'm such a champion of BetterHelp because they're literally democratizing access to something so fundamentally important, but historically out of reach or just too stigmatized for too many. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Visit betterhelp.com slash richroll today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by my new friends at Bond Charge, which is this really cool company that makes a fantastic broad line of evidence-based holistic wellness products. They make everything from blue blocking glasses to red light therapy devices to EMF shielding products and tons more, including this really cool infrared sauna blanket, which is sort of like a sleeping bag lit internally with infrared that heats your body directly 
rather than from the surrounding air like a traditional sauna, which basically delivers the same benefit with lower heat. It's super easy to set up. You just roll it out on the ground in your living room, on your bed, wherever. It heats up instantly and you can enjoy it while you, I don't know, watch this podcast or read a book. It's pretty great before bed. It eases sore muscles, reduces stress, and you can get free shipping on every sauna blanket, no hidden costs, in addition to easy returns and exchanges. You get a 30-day trial and a 12-month warranty. To learn more about the infrared sauna blanket and Boncharge's other awesome products, go to boncharge.com richroll and use coupon code richroll to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com slash richroll and use coupon code richroll to save 15%. Anytime anybody's taking a bold step to do something different, they're going to be across purposes with social norms. Mm-hmm. So for you, that's just affirmation, right? <laughs> <laughs> that you're on a trajectory yeah, yeah. towards, you know, the aspiration of being one of those historical figures. And when you think about those people or those biographies that were most impactful, like who are the people that that stand out? It's such a great variety. I just finished up Magellan you know, first person to circumnavigate the globe. And if you read about it, it's like the world was going crazy on this idea of trade routes and spices and all the things. It's just like every boom cycle we have right now. Like humanity just plays this game over and over and over again. It's the same thing. We think we're playing this new novel game. It's not. It's been played for thousands of years. So Magellan is really fun. I finished up a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was Mm -hmm. a religious person in Hitler's World War II Germany, and he was trying to assassinate Hitler. So in that moment, I was so curious because you can read about World War II, about this army doing that thing and Churchill doing this and like those moves. But I wanted to understand if you're in World War II Germany and Hitler's rising to power, what's happening? Like, how do you discern is this person good for Germany or bad for Germany? Do you understand what he's suggesting for the Jews or do you not understand? Do you hear secrets about it? Like, I want to understand real time and place, what was happening and his account of how he was basically scheming to assassinate Hitler and all the maneuvering thereabouts, that was just fascinating for me because that's a very cloudy time in my mind. How does Hitler rise to power? How does that thing happen? How does the world know or not know and do something about it? So mm-hmm. uh, those kind of things, I, I really enjoy reading about that to understand it in detail. Right. The frog in in the water that's, yeah. that slowly boils, you're in a situation that's creeping in a certain direction, but because you're a participant in it, you're yeah. not, you don't have the adequate awareness to understand what's truly happening. Exactly. This is the most exciting thing for me. So if we play this game right now and you and I say, the, ask this question, in this moment, what is really going on? Like really, really going on. What's happening? What's really going on? And now to do this, the first 20 thoughts we have, we probably have to just push aside because they're probably garbage. We have to like really sit in this thing. And that's the only chance you have at clarity of thought. After I sold Braintree Venmo, I organized a dozen or so dinners around the country. I got my friends together, their friends of friends, and just wanted to bring together ambitious people. And I gave them this thought experiment. Let's imagine we're in 2050. At the time, it was 2017. We arrive at 2050. We are thriving as a species. Like It's just this magical existence. What did we focus on in 2017 to make that a reality? And I wanted to tease out, mm-hmm. like, what are the intuitions? And like, probably predictably, you would imagine that you, you basically hear clusters of thought that represent the modern zeitgeist. 
it was very, very rare for someone to come up with something contrarian. You know, like it was something that someone wouldn't just pull out of the zeitgeist. But it was really helpful nonetheless to just kind of find like where are people's minds at right now? Where do they think trajectories are heading? Because I really wanted to seed, I want to seed my own thoughts on like what is happening now? Where do people think uh, things are going? And then you have to put do the hard work of now what is no one seeing? Mm-hmm. And what is no one seeing? What did you extrapolate from that experience? It was a single thought experiment, which led me to what I'm doing now. Whether I'm right or wrong, we'll see. But a conviction to move forward. It's I'm present with intelligence of the 25th century. I can't say they're talking because I don't know how that communication works, but just there's this essence of intelligence and they're observing what happened in the early 21st century to make intelligent existence thrive in this part of the galaxy. What do they observe? So in the same way, we look at the 16th century and we kind of compress the entire century and down to like four things or five mm-hmm. things. It's a very intense compression. And the observation I thought they, they said is Homo sapiens figured out on the eve of the creation of superintelligence that the only foe was death. They figured out to turn all their attention to not dying. Don't die individually. Don't kill each other. Don't destroy the planet and build AI in a way that enables all intelligence to thrive. That's the biggest revolution in the history of the human race because it challenges that death has always been inevitable. So it challenges that fundamental thing. And two, it challenges every game of status and power we've ever played. If you wanted to rise above your peers before, you'd raise an army, go kill people and and acquire their territory. It's always been rooted in this violence and acquisition at uh, one person's gain and another person's loss. You have to transition the entirety of the species to say, we're going after different games. And uh, that's when I, yeah, when I started doing Blueprint, I thought, so philosophically you can say this, but it doesn't matter. You actually have to be it for people to understand it. Mm. There's so much in what you just shared. I want to tease out a few things that came up for me. The first of which is the presumption, which is increasingly becoming more and more real with every single day, that artificial intelligence uh, is going to become not just an overarching kind of aspect of how we live our lives, but in your case, almost an all-powerful entity that is benevolent by nature to which we then outsource all of our decision-making that our brains, you know, we've relied on our brains since the dawn of humanity so that the artificial intelligence can make better decisions in our best interest and in the best interest of the collective and the planet as a whole. That requires a very optimistic view of this emergent technology amidst a lot of discourse around its perils and its potentiality to Mm -hmm. actually do the opposite of what you're projecting. Yeah. So a few examples. I just did this AI art to retell the story of Adam and Eve. So I wanted to pose the question, if we retold our origin story right now, instead of thousands of years ago, right now in 2023, what would the origin story of Adam and Eve be like and how would we project ourselves out? And I thought that was an interesting thought experiment because it gets at exactly what you talked about, which is if you look at the precedents where the first time a message was sent with a telegraph, the Pony Express was dead. Nobody wanted to run mail anymore with horses. It was so much better. 
the first time you could navigate with GPS, a paper map on your lap is dead. It's just inevitable. Like we don't do these things because it's more efficient. When you can wash your clothing in a washing machine versus down at the river. So you look at these hundreds of examples of where technology becomes sufficiently good at doing a given task. It's more efficient or cost-effective or whatever the case may be. We humans adopt it extremely fast. I'm arguing with my health and wellness that my team and I have built an algorithm that takes better care of me than I can myself. It is able to look at all the data in my body. It's looking at scientific evidence. It creates an algorithm. So it creates superior cognitive ability, superior metabolic ability, superior physical ability. All above, I am a superior human because it's algorithm. So I have two options. Do I say I'm going to do things as I did and go peruse my pantry? Am I going to make decisions on the menu? No, like I'm going to choose the algorithm just like I use GPS, like a washing machine, and like I use autopilot on an airplane. And so it's inevitable that when these things cross a technological threshold and they allow each of us to achieve our goals, we adopt them instantaneously. Up until that point, we kick and scream. We talk about lost jobs. We talk about the fear. Like It's a process every single time it happens, but we ruthlessly adopt them. And so that's just what's going to happen. It's absolutely inevitable. The picture also paints a very authoritarian view that obviates human choice, right? Like you're, you're lobbying for a world in which there's an AI that has your best interest at heart. It's going to tell you exactly what to eat, when to go to bed. All of your decision-making mm -hmm. is outsourced to this thing that will produce better outcomes for you. But with that becomes a relinquishment of some level of liberty that many people would, you know, counter-argue yeah. undermines the, the beauty of living, right? Yeah. So your yeah. response to that is? Yeah, this is the dinner I invited you to. Oh, it was. Yeah. Who else was there? Yeah. What did I miss? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I missed oh, that. Oh, no, it's, it's been... It's, um, <laughs> Uh, it's been remarkable. The people, so I've had this dinner over a dozen times. And so I pose this thought experiment and I say, okay, so imagine you have an algorithm at your disposal. It creates the best health and wellness of your life, spiritually, mentally, physically, all the above. You can say yes to that. The trade-off is you eat what it says it will. You go to bed when it says it, what it says it will. Like you, you follow mm -hmm. the instructions. And you can't opt out. Once exactly. you're in, that's it. Well, I mean, so I don't even make that parameter. I don't get that specific. It's just very general. So I create the thought experiment and then we go around the table. There's like 12 of us. At this point, like we're pretty intimate. We understand each other. Mm -hmm. And so it's mathematically, it's almost identical every time. So a third of the people say, yes, anything to save me for myself. Like I can't stop myself from doing blank, blank, blank. So like, yes. Or another 30%, yeah, are like, um, hey, yes, but... Um, I want to make a few modifications. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, lol, that's not the thought yeah. experiment. <laughs> the human desire for the a la carte version yeah. of the blue part is undefeated, I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. Right? And then the remaining, you know, let's just call it 40%, I kind of like fuck off. And so like, you gave me a pretty soft fuck off because you were basically raising like, look. I'm just raising the argument that I'm sure you hear a million times <laughs> yeah, to hear but, how you respond to that. But like, you know, it's, it's legit because you're basically like, look, I've got human agency. This is the thing I understand. I want to choose to live life a certain way. I've got certain ideals and what it means to live life. I've got plans. So like, it just, it trips every wire in the human brain where mm. it's so offensive. That's why people are like, they don't even know. Some response would be like, is this a cult? You know, like, yeah. it's like it just generates these really strong responses. And so I'm not lobbying for this. I'm arguing it's inevitable. It's already here. 
we're wasting time on these debates. Like, this is not a situation where we're like, we're in full control and we're going to decide how this thing works. It's not. Like, it's gone. And so what I'm suggesting is if we can reconcile philosophically with what's happening, we are going to be in a better place for the species. We increase the probabilities of our survival. Right now, we're in la-la land thinking that we're somehow in control of the whole situation. Hmm. I can't decide whether I'm excited or terrified. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll fast forward two hours for you. So at the end of the conversation, we go around and everyone's able to basically be like, okay, so like, here's my emotional state. Here's my concern. Here's my philosophical position. Mm-hmm. And you know, like the same 20 or 30 arguments are presented every time. We go back and forth. We look at all the different angles. So then, And then people have like three or four existential crises. You know, they drop down. It's like, I don't know why I exist. And they come back up. At the end... Gladly, everyone hugs. It's like, this is one of the best experiences of my life. I'm so happy we got to do this together. They're exchanging numbers. So it ends up being this incredibly emotionally productive thing where we all get to reconcile our various views of reality. Not that we agree, but just like we can reconcile with like, here's maybe the situation. What is the thing that helps the most resistant person come to terms with what you're forecasting as the inevitable reality? So I'm usually the most unrelatable person at the table. I'm not surprised. (laughs) What I say doesn't really matter and resonate. So it's Uh like when someone else is able to take these ideas and maybe they get their head around a little bit, they're like, I think this. And they say it in some relatable way. The person's Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But it's like never me that delivers up the relatable thing that people are like, okay, I'm actually okay with that thing. It's a slow walk to just understand the basics of they perceive themselves as having full control right now. In reality, they live in several AI bubbles. The content they see on YouTube, the music they listen to, what they see on Netflix, the books they read, you know, they're recommended to them. Like we have all this algorithmic influence around us already and we just don't talk about it, but it's dramatically influenced. You know, what we see, what we see on social media. And we understand that one, we're already in the whole bunch of these webs. And two is as technology progresses, we do adopt them in our lives, like unquestionably, because it helps us achieve the things, things we care about. And once we do that adoption, we feel empowered. And so if, if you just look at the landscape of our lives today, we already say yes to this. We have said yes to this. Our lives are evidence of that. And so it's not a big jump that what I'm saying is just really, it's trying to bring it out to the open and say, can we have a discussion about this? And if we are open about it, we may actually build a more robust system. Hmm. Part of that involves popping the the balloon, the delusion of agency that I think we ha- like. We believe we have mm-hmm. more agency mm-hmm. in our decision making mm-hmm. and our opinions and our beliefs and our yeah. sense of of what is true and what is real. Right. Yep. So yep. you're challenging that yep. cogently by disabusing people yep. of that notion. And I think on top of that, like, look, I'm I'm deeply aware of and connected to the fact that like my brain doesn't have my self-interest at heart. Yeah. Like I'm a recovering alcoholic, oh, that's amazing. junk food addict. Yeah. I've been, you yeah. know, in the gutter. Yeah. I've been, you know, overweight and out of shape and left to my own devices. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. going to bury my head in that bag of yeah. chips like yeah. every single time and I'm yeah. going to make the wrong choices. Yeah. And I've had to create incredibly stringent rules for myself, guardrails, yeah to avoid the temptations that 
are overpowering for me and perhaps, you know, maybe more overpowering for me than they are for an average person or or somebody else. And I've been successful in that regard, but I'm highly flawed and I, you know, I'm not always great at doing this and I'll mess up. And so my life has become regimented, not to the extent that Mm -hmm. yours is, like I'm a poor man's version of, of your experiment, but it's all been informed by my experiences with the limitations Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. my brain, Mm -hmm. which don't have my best interest at heart. And that has to be overridden by not allowing myself to have an opinion about certain things. So the rules are very binary Mm -hmm. and that makes them easier to follow. I'm not outsourcing them to an artificial intelligence, but by making that choice and that declaration, it is easier to kind of adhere to those guardrails, I suppose. You've just taken this, you know, a thousand degrees further. Yeah, and I would pause and say, I really enjoy being here with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I really am misunderstood. And it is extraordinarily challenging to get to this level of conversation. Mm. And so I appreciate you going here with me I just really appreciate the back and forth. Oh, thank you. And especially your acknowledgement of your own limitations. It is uh, so rare for, for someone to observe in themselves the disaster situation it is to be human. And like we're all just barely on a thread. So yeah, I, I guess I'm just really appreciative that we have a chance to talk about oh, this. thank yeah. you. That's meaningful. I, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, listen, we delude ourselves into thinking that we're our own best friend. Yes. And, and most often, at least in my case, I'm my own worst enemy, like exactly. constantly. Even with the the kind of narratives that loop in my mind yeah. about who I am and what I'm capable exactly. of, like it's terrible. I wouldn't do that to anybody else. And I think having an appreciation for that or, or a, a really kind of mature understanding of that allows me to be more compassionate and less judgmental yeah. of other people yeah. because it's fucking hard to be human. Yeah, it and is very hard. Every single day we're faced with temptation. I mean, our modern world has perfected through science and experimentation and psychology to create a landscape of material goods, foods, you name it. Every single thing is specifically designed with gigantic resources behind it to entice and addict you. Yeah for reasons that have nothing to do with your well-being yes, exactly. at all, exactly. right? And in fact, is quite often in opposition to yeah. that. Yeah, amazing. And so you're sort of staking, you're putting a flag in the ground and saying, I will not adhere. Like, yes. I am not living in accordance with these rules. I'm stepping outside of it. I'm going to let a team of very smart people study me and study what's best for me, and I'm going to let them make those decisions for myself. Now, certain people would say, well, you've created a gilded cage for yourself, but I know through other interviews that I've watched with you that you're like the happiest that you've ever been. And I think I want to hear a little bit more about that. And I will just say in, you know, prefatory to that, that I think we over-index or over-emphasize a sense of happiness that comes with choice. Like, I have Mm -hmm. liberty, Mm -hmm. so I'm happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we underappreciate or don't appreciate at all that with certain restrictions or guardrails to kind of rein us in and, and prevent us from indulging in our behaviors that don't serve us, there is a certain underappreciated freedom that brings a certain happiness that, at least in my life, I haven't experienced in any other way. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm going to take this opening you've created. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, I've never been able to talk about this on a podcast. 
because it's always about like, what are you eating? What's your exercise protocol? Mm-hmm. What time you go to bed? I'm arguing for basically three things. In the early 13 colonies of America, there was a big debate on whether uh, they should be ruled by the monarch of England or whether they should adopt a democracy. And Thomas Paine wrote this pamphlet, and he argued that the colonies should adopt democracy because they would be better at ruling their own interests than having the monarch. And he talked about all the shortcomings of the monarch. And we now look back and we think, okay, democracy is actually one of the biggest advancements in the history of the human race where you had this new way of governing away from monarchs. At the time, it was not clear. And this is an example of history of like what is really cloudy in that moment. How do people see clarity? His pamphlet was the best-selling of the early American colony days and democracy prevailed. And in that moment, democracy ended up being a more powerful system of managing uh, human thriving. One individual as a monarch was inferior to this democratic system. I did the same thing with my body. My mind is a monarch. In the same way you just spoke about your mind, your mind is acting contrary to your best interest. My mind is a drunken sailor. Exactly, it is. It's an absolute disaster. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I did the same with my body. I said, who should really be in charge? The monarch or should we have a democratic rule? And then we started with Blueprint. We started measuring every organ of my body. And we said, okay, heart, lungs, liver, pancreas, cardiovascular function. What do you need to be your best self? And I let them speak. And I, so I shifted the power from my monarch mind, that's a disaster, to my body to be in charge. And that's what the algorithm works with. The algorithm works directly with my body. What I'm arguing here for the human race is I'm suggesting we have always treated our mind as the ultimate authority on all things. It decides on in any circumstance what it wants, when it wants, how it thinks, what it's going to prioritize. It has ultimate authority like the monarch. I'm arguing in this next phase of the human race that that is an antiquated model of management of human life. There are more powerful and more capable systems of intelligence that are emergent, specifically what I've done with Blueprint, empowering my body and artificial intelligence to manage itself. Now, do I still have free will? I feel like I do. Do I still have my same uh, agency? I feel like I do. Am I happier? I feel like I am. But it's this paired with the challenging of death is the most significant revolution in the history of Homo sapiens. Hmm. And it is almost impossible for someone to get their head around it. It takes hours to sit down and have a conversation to understand. In this conversation, your mind is like immediately chirping, but wait. I still bristle at the idea of outsourcing everything to a super intelligence in the same way that when we have a GPS on our phone or on our car dashboard, we suddenly are paying less attention to the topography of our natural environment because we've outsourced having to really understand that. When we begin to outsource more and more of our decisions to something outside of ourselves, to play that to its ultimate conclusion is to play out the paperclip thought experiment, except instead of paperclips, it's people. So this could go very wrong in the most dystopian way. 
what you're arguing for requires a level of trust and faith in our ability to craft this superintelligence in a way that is truly benevolent, but does that not overlook the fact that perhaps it might have its own ideas about Mm -hmm. how that might go? I'm suggesting that we have no choice. We think we have choice. We think we have optionality. We don't. We are up against survival. I understand your emotion of bristling. That's what happens every single time. Mm -hmm. And it, it does. It takes a long time to get past the bristle. This is the same as the monarch. It's the same revolution. Your mind is a monarch that does a terrible job managing your best interests. You know this. And even knowing this, even telling me in this conversation, you still bristle with the idea that this thing wouldn't be in charge of you, that you don't trust at all. You Mm -hmm. know it's bad for you, and you bristle still. The enemy you know. It's so complicated. So if you take yourself out of the situation and you're observing someone else, isn't it curious that, yeah, the enemy you do know is working towards your demise and you're basically powerless against it. And there's another technology, another way of doing this that saves you from yourself. Would you be open to that? Hmm. It sounds like an invitation to join the matrix. Like just <laughs> like, I want to have a nice steak and make me a movie star, Yeah, you know, plug me in. You're like, it's happening. I mean, so... Just let's look at the past thousand years. We live day to day, so time seems slower to us. But if you look at the speed of technological progress, the rate is a line straight up. It's astronomical right now. It's straight up. So like whether we're talking about one year or five years or 10 years or 20, whatever, it's absolutely in a blink of an eye on any time scale that is longer than our two-hour conversation. It's here right now. This is why I don't die. When I do the thought experiment of all the things we could be contemplating about our existence, if we're trying to avoid a situation where we annihilate each other with nukes or bioweapons or anything else, and we're trying to say, can we agree on one thing, just one thing so we don't destroy the species and continue to, to exist, what can we agree upon? It's don't die. It's the game every single human on this planet plays every second of every day. It's the only thing we can agree upon. But outside of the don't die, we branch into thousands and thousands of disagreements. As a species, we have this wild range of disagreements about everything. That's why I compress it and say, what does the 21st century say about the 21st century? It's the rallying cry for the 21st century. It's the only way to build AI. It's the, only, the only ethics and morals is don't die of anything across the planet. Now, of course, it branches into all kinds of complexity, but still, you can start with some agreement. Basically, how do you stitch together this moment in time? What is really going on? How do you punch through all the noise and all the chaos and really figure out what's going on right now? Nobody's diet is absolutely perfect every single day without fail, myself, of course, included, which is why for the last, I don't know, six, seven years, I've made consistently drinking AG1 on the daily a major priority. It's just one scoop mixed in water, 
and it makes me feel super energized and nourished even when my diet isn't up to par. Each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and postbiotics and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just so easy and convenient. Plus every batch goes through a rigorous testing process and is carefully formulated for maximum absorption, potency and nutrient density. I've partnered with AG1 for these past seven years now and that's because it's a product I really believe can elevate your health and keep your nutrition game on point. I just can't recommend it enough. So if you wanna take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash richroll. That's drinkag1.com slash richroll. Check it out. At our core, we all long for peace. We all yearn for contentment. And above all, we all desire happiness, but underappreciated is the efficacy of meditation and our ability, our innate ability to train the mind to achieve more joy, more well-being and equanimity. Waking Up's guided meditations, founded by neuroscientist, philosopher and best-selling author Sam Harris, provide just that, plus this extraordinary library of additional resources courses on stoicism, courses on cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, and so much more. Sam also has dozens of thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. But my absolute favorite is the complete organized collection of talks by Alan Watts, which is just a stunning treasure of wisdom I find myself revisiting time and time again. Listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship. Right now, just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. It's a most worthy investment in yourself. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. I still can't shake this idea that within you is some profound or deep fear of death that is not unrelated to your break with a church that promised everlasting life <laughs> and now living living a life outside of religion this mission has supplanted or replaced what used to be provided by the church. Is there any truth in that? I mean, possibly, right? As far as my self-awareness goes, mm -hmm. Camus, the famous French philosopher, he went to the existential edges of philosophy, of, of existentialism. And he basically came to the conclusion, you know, existence is meaningless. So the only relevant question is whether you commit suicide. There's nothing else that matters. And once you decide whether you commit suicide or not, if you don't, then you just play. In my thought experiment, whether I'm influenced by my past or my upbringing, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, it's very, very hard for me to comment. The only thing I'm trying to do is distill the most basic essence of reality to know one thing. 
It's not just be wandering about in the confusion of existence. I'm trying to say one thing is distillation of there, essence. There's something inescapably Buddhist in what you're doing, though, because this quest to see how far you can push the boundaries of Hellspan is an experiment in not just self-preservation, but it's a very kind of singularly focused experiment on self, right? So you could make the argument that this is the most self-obsessed person and experiment of all time, but the overlying kind of mission is to do this for the benefit of humanity. And so it goes mm -hmm. to that Buddhist idea of the best way of improving the world is to improve yourself. Mm. And if you can be a model for what is possible, that becomes a template for others to modify or copy, right? Yeah. yeah. I tried to become the problem that I'm trying to solve in society. So we hear a lot of discussion about uh, AI goal alignment. So the idea is AI is powerful. We want it to, to want what humans want. We don't want it to go rogue and hurt us. And so like the paperclip outcomes, like mm. avoid that stuff. Uh, we want nation states to get along and not nuke each other. We want each other to get along and not kill each other. So society is basically trying to goal align, right? We're trying to get our on the same page with so many things. And that's hard to do. We do a lot of things through that. I wanted to say, can I become the goal alignment problem? So I'm 35 trillion cells, Brian Johnson. Can I goal align my 35 trillion cells? Because not all my cells want the same thing. My brain's like, hey, let's have a drink and stay up late and party. And so that's what this endeavor has been is I'm trying to say, can I take 35 trillion cells, 35 intelligent agents, align it towards a singular objective of don't die? Because we have no hope of getting the whole planet to align on anything if we can't figure out how to align ourselves. Exactly. Now, if I do that, then you, the same model is applied to planet Earth. Okay, so planet Earth is an amazing place. We currently don't have a backup. So how do we make the planet not die? The same concept. You take millions of measurements of planet Earth, the soil and the atmosphere. You look at scientific evidence of what is a thriving biosphere of coral and, and oceans and air. You implement the protocol, and then we humans deal with it. Because hmm. we currently treat planet Earth the same way we treat our bodies. We do whatever we want. We pollute it how much we want. Like if the oceans become more acidic, whatever. If we lose coral reef, whatever. If we lose the ice caps, whatever. We just destroy it. And this protocol will be dictated by an all-seeing, all-knowing, authoritative AI that will rule the planet and create the protocol. Us as humans, our job is to carry the protocol out. Uh, it, it's just, <laughs> it's built on right. just like a step-by-step -step process and how we built everything else in society. So the authoritarianism will just creep up on us. I wouldn't say it's authoritarianism. I mean, so is democracy authoritarianism? No. It's the same system. You're taking intelligent agents that are all acting in some methodology towards goal alignment with this tapestry mm. of rules. And democracy has outperformed monarchy. My system has outperformed almost all human systems. We're just simply trying to elevate the quality of the system towards don't die. It's this very gradual step function. Mm. Do you believe that there's a possibility that you won't die? Yes. Unquestionably. That you will live in perpetuity, short of getting into a car accident sure. or something like that. Yeah. 
You're not going skydiving anytime soon. <laughs> if we try to sober ourselves, we say, how smart is superintelligence? In what way is it smart? And how smart? How different is it from us? And if we say, okay, let's just try to do a few thought experiments that like maybe are relatable to us. So we're a million years ago talking to Homo erectus. Homo erectus like, barely has language, has an axe, hasn't innovated upon the axe for a million years. And we say, Homo erectus, we trust you so much. We think you're so amazing. You know, go wild and tell us your vision about the future of the species. Is Homo erectus going to be able to, you know, wax poetic about quantum mechanics and, you know, thermodynamics and computers and internet and markets and money? No way. Mm-hmm. So if Homer Rectus is like, you know, what do I want to live for? Like, you know, it's life is so hard. I go out and hunt food all day and I have to battle all these wild things. And Homer Rectus has absolutely nothing valuable to say about the future of its existence. The only thing it can say is, I don't want to die because I want to be around for the optionality. In this moment where we exist, I don't think our opinions matter at all. Nothing I think, nothing I want, nothing I hope for, nothing I presume matters at all. We're up against this wall with intelligence that is just unimaginable to us. So I give zero credence to my opinions. I'm homo erectus. I'm, I'm so primitive, it's laughable. So why would I even try to enter into the situation? The only thing I want to say is I want an option to the, to the future. Is it going to be good or bad? I have no idea. Well, I like it or not, I have no idea. I have no idea. I just want to say yes to it because it's happening. <laughs> and so I want, to, I want to be along for the ride. I want to get into the actual protocol of what you're doing, but before we do that, I want to have a sense of, of what the data is currently telling you and how that plays into this idea or this belief that you have that the possibility of persisting exists for you. Yeah. Since I sold Braintree Venmo, I, I invested uh, tens of millions of dollars in companies that are programming physical reality. So genomics, nanotechnology, synthetic biology, computational therapeutics. One of my companies, for example, structures molecule, molecule by molecule like Legos to do novel things in the world. We now have the ability to program the physical world with atoms and molecules and organisms like we can program computer software. We can program, reliably program reality in every way possible. It's the most unbelievable situation in the whole world. And we're doing this now with these computational tools that are more powerful. What would be an example of that? I'm, that feels very abstract. Like, um, let's say you want to produce rose oil as a fragrance. So typically you would go plant the plants in the field, you would fertilize it, you'd water it, you'd harvest it, then you'd get the rose oil. The alternative is to take a yeast, an organism, and program the yeast to manufacture rose oil. Mm-hmm. Or... The way we build houses now is we grow a tree, we cut it down, we then put it in a certain place and we build a house. You would just grow a house out of a tree. You'd program it. Mm. And so you can program biology to do the things that we otherwise would do otherwise. And that's how powerful our ability is to engineer biology and, and reality. And so we have this root level access to program these things. That's what my companies have been doing for the past 10 years. It's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, it's like, it's so amazing that it's happening and it's like no one knows about it, that we have these abilities to do it. It's, yeah, it's really cool. So if you say, okay, we now have the ability to basically engineer existence at every level, molecules and organisms and atoms, and now you have these new computational tools and we understand the mechanism of aging, you have all the pieces together to solve it. Like you don't need to believe a whole lot. You just give it some time. 
there's like some outstanding question that's like, no, nope, this is going to break the laws of physics and uh, there's just no, like the speed of light, like how are we going to get faster than the speed of light? We're not sure. Mm-hmm. This is not the same problem. It's all the pieces are there. And the fact that it's biological systems makes it no different than 3D printing a treehouse or yeah. a rose oil. Yeah. You know, nature does this already. There's several examples in nature, certain types of jellyfish and others where they have these remarkable rejuvenation abilities. So like biology has already demonstrated it's capable of doing this. So we're in a really good place. And that's why this is such an exciting moment to be alive. And if we could just take a sober stock of like the situation, it's silly to be killing each other. It's silly to be going to war. It's silly to be killing our planet. It's silly to commit self-destructive behavior and increase death. Like this is why the 25th century thought experiment to me is so helpful. They would look at us and be like, of course, <laughs> you don't die. Mm-hmm. Like, of course. And, but we're so caught up in this moment. We come up with all these arguments on like this and that, and we're scared. And, but like, no, like, they, like, of course, you do that one thing. You're not the first person to come on the podcast and have a, you know, a somewhat Pollyanna perspective of, of longevity and what the future might hold. I've had Peter Diamandis on here, Sergey Young. But I think all of this, you know, for me, ends up in a situation where we haven't quite delivered on the promise yet. Like we've kind of inched our way up to a certain kind of edge. But when it comes to the big breakthrough yeah. or the thing that's going to change everything, there's a lot of talk, but not a lot of yeah. evidence or proof yet. And then amongst this this sort of culture of people who are really focused on longevity and health span extension, there's a lot of disagreement. Mm-hmm. Like they don't agree on a lot and they're quibbling over yeah. whether it's NMN or NAD and like rapamycin and all, you know, these tiny little details yep. within that world yep. that I can't help but think we're still kind of a ways off from what you're talking about. Yeah. If you extrapolate what's happening right now uh, with how fast artificial intelligence is improving, I don't need any evidence at all to have a bullish outlook that aging is going to be solved in some near future. If you just do some rough math, and let's just say if humans were in charge of aging research, let's just say it would take us 200 years to try to solve aging, right? Like Mm -hmm. something long and like we look at our rates of progress. When you include artificial intelligence, it works at speeds that are orders of magnitudes faster than humans. And so if you say, okay, it's a trillion times faster than what humans can do or whatever the number is, Let's discount that number and say 90% of that compute capacity is like not really human intellect. It's like wasted on other stuff. And so you apply some level to that. When you apply that number to the future over the next 10 years, with the aid of self of superintelligence, you have the equivalent of millions of years of human effort on aging. Right. So like what can we accomplish? Compressed accom- into almost no time at all. Because yeah. you're adding to the intelligence equation trillions of, you know, compute into that equation. So Mm. this is why, again, we can't trust our minds to be making these forecasts. We're in a situation where the power of this intelligence so far outstrips our ability to model it. Any forecast we make is silly. Then how can we trust our minds to craft 
the artificial intelligence or the supercomputer with the adequate safety measures to ensure that its priority yeah. is the survival of the human race. If we can't yeah. trust our minds with our own daily habits, how can we trust that we even have the capacity yeah. to foresee what might go awry yep. with the you know the birth that we're giving to yep. something that has a level of intelligence we can't even comprehend don't die <laughs> okay i mean right like now of it's course it's circular in that regard now of course it's like it's more nuanced because mm -hmm. what does don't die mean right and it means hundreds of different things and there's trade offs so it's really complicated but it, again if you have to take this incredibly complicated question how do we agree on one thing? And right now, you know, we don't agree on don't die. We kill ourselves. We kill each other. We kill the planet. We are a violent species killing everything around us. And that's why this is such a relevant revolution. It's so simple. It's like right in front of our face. For those who are building AI, I would feel much better if they're not actively killing themselves if they're sufficiently mm. self-aware that they're not proactively moving themselves towards disease and death, that inside of them, they have the philosophy, this is the thing that underpins everything we're building together in society. Mm. It's not about dominance. It's not about wealth accumulation. It's not about conquering territory. It is a change, a fundamental change of our existence. You know, my bullish about aging all I can say is I look at the models and like, I want to be around for the possibility, but it seems interesting that like, yeah, uh, we could be around for it. Mm. So how old are you? 46. 46. Um, and you've been actively engaged in, in this protocol and its refinements for three years. Mm -hmm. How long at this point? Yeah, almost three years. So explain what the blueprint protocol is. We're an hour and a half into this. So we haven't <laughs> even gotten into what it is that you Great. actually do. <laughs> Which you can find in a million other interviews yeah. you've done and you've made a zillion videos about. Yeah. Really simply stated is uh, I do what everyone does every day, which is I try not to die. And so I just simply said, what if I tried to become the best in history at not dying? And so the way we did that is we said, I'm going to become the most measured person in human history. The world champion of not dying. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we're going to measure every single thing about my body, everything we can you know, thousands of data points. We're going to look at scientific literature. We're going to say, okay, how is the body dying? And then we're going to say, what can we do to stop the body from dying? Mm -hmm. And that's what we've done. We've just tried to become best in the world and not dying. To do this, you have deployed copious resources. I think something like $2 million a year. I don't know, you know, whatever, a lot of money, right? Yeah, like yeah. you're all in. Yeah. And of course you're not doing this alone. You, you have a team of people who are advising you. So before we even get into the practices and the protocol itself, how did you go about identifying the experts and recruiting them to be participants in this? Yeah. Like, who are these people and why did you pick them over others? Yeah. Your point is correct. You said that every anti-aging specialist disagrees. Right. With that's, <laughs> it's, it's, every, that's why I'm asking this question. Yeah, everyone disagrees mm -hmm. with everyone. And so what we are trying to do is to say, how would you potentially punch through the noise? Because while everyone's debating these topics like NR versus NMN, cold plunge or not, like whatever you're talking, my mom and my dad want to know what to eat for breakfast. Mm -hmm. 
And there's like, everyone's kind of in that space. And so we said, okay, the way we're going to do this is we're just going to do me as N of one. And you can criticize it and say, well, that's not a population level study. It's only one, not applicable, whatever. Still, I'd rather do this than I would hang out in never ending debate land. It also gives people who are observing what you're doing, like an emotional connection to it and a way in rather than just reading a study or a report because yeah. you're so transparent in sharing everything you're doing every single day, what's working, what's not working, what we decided to abandon, the new thing that you're playing around with, that it's storytelling and yeah. that's what gets people engaged. And so they have, you're like a locus, like we can just look at what Brian's doing, maybe it's N of one, Maybe there are things that we can extract from yeah. his experiences. But I think, you know, saying I'm going to be this living experiment is the best way to create interest in yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Okay. I would say Blueprint is the best health protocol developed in history. Prove me wrong with your data. We can now say that. I know you've said that many times. Has anybody come back to you with a bunch of data and this challenged is the thing. you? No one in the world has done it. No one has uh, measured themselves like me. No one's come with a competing model. I'm three years in, I'm still all by myself. You know, people may be reading papers and saying like, do this thing and that thing. No one. Mm. And you know, like, it's hard, uh, it's expensive. So there's barriers to do it. But still like, I mean, and if someone beat this, it would be the best thing ever. Like I would absolutely celebrate it. Because that would just level up what you're doing. Exactly. It's I mean, not a threat. It's no. like, it's an ad. Exactly. And I work with people extensively to help them try to beat me. So like, I really want others to come up and improve better ways of doing it. That's how we lift everyone. Like the objective here is not to be number one. The objective here is to be a zero. That's a concept I guess I haven't played. Mm -hmm. Like it really is, this is about thriving as a species. This is not about being me trying to be ranked number one. Rank, being ranked number one is like an old fashioned idea. It's just a former version of being homo sapien. It's not relevant going forward. Back to the experts, who are these people and why did you select them? Yeah, so the principal architect on the project is Oliver Zolman. He's 29 years old and I was interviewing a bunch of people and he stood out to me. We connected and we instantaneously just kind of got locked in for life. <laughs> it was like, it was a really great meeting of minds. And he had this approach where he said, basically, you can't understand and treat aging unless you do it at the organ level. You have to focus on the heart and understand what is the anatomical nature of the heart and what is the function of the heart. You have to age it out. And you have to do the same for the lungs, the same for the kidney and the pancreas. Mm -hmm. Unless you're doing things on an organ by organ basis, like you really can't structurally solve aging. And I loved his methodical approach. It was mathematical in nature. It was rigorous. It was quantified. And then he and I have built out a team of people all over the world that specialize in the various organs. So we'll find world experts in every organ area mm -hmm. or biological process. And we work with them and we just refine these things continually. So he's like your chief of staff, chief medical officer. Yeah, he's the chief architect. Yeah. yeah. So let's get into the various practices. Uh, obviously, it breaks down into sleep, nutrition, exercise, supplements, some pharmacology, some medical interventions, lots of testing. You talk about skin care, hair care, dental care, it's basically everything, right? Yeah. But I want to begin with sleep because that is the most important thing. I think you would agree with that. And I think that sleep is really a Trojan horse mm. here. So talk a little bit about the importance of sleep and how you practice sleep hygiene. Yeah. 
I know when I'm not well-rested, I feel half-dead. I feel inebriated. You know, I feel compromised. I'm ornery. I feel snippy. So uh, the difference between a good night's sleep and a bad night's sleep is just nothing changes my conscious existence more. It's unbelievable, the difference. <laughs> yeah. When you have an extraordinary <laughs> night of sleep, yeah. problems seem to get solved without stress. Your creative capacity is through the roof. Your ability to navigate obstacles, like everything is easier. Yeah. It is like a superpower. Yeah. And I've had so many occasions where I'm having one of those days and I think I would literally pay any amount of money to be able to replicate this and feel this way every yeah, day. Yeah. And I have gone to yeah. great lengths, yeah. Brian, yeah. <laughs> not, not as far as you, but my sleep hygiene routine is pretty fucking extensive. Yeah, I sleep yeah. outside in a tent. Yeah, like I do yeah. things that you don't even do. Yeah. And my sleep score on the Whoop is pretty good. Yeah. Like I'll hit a hundred, you know, once or twice a week and I'm in the nineties on average or at the high eighties, which is probably good in the context of the Western world. Yeah. But it is very rare that I would hit a hundred percent even two days in a row. Mm. But you have hit a hundred percent for over six months. Eight months now. Eight months. Yeah. Without a single day. I think I've missed like three or four days, yeah. I cannot even imagine yeah, being yeah. able to do that yeah. or what it must feel like to feel that good every single day. Yeah, I love it. Yes, to everything you said. <laughs> Here's the thing. People think sleep hygiene begins with, you know, when it starts to get dark and yeah. you're thinking about going to bed. Yeah. Sleep hygiene begins as soon as you open up your eyes in the yeah, morning. Yeah. You have to start getting ready mm -hmm. for that evening experience. Yeah. And despite all of the things that I've done, I have not oriented my life with the rigor that you yeah. have. Every single thing that you do every day, all the choices you make about the food, when you eat, what you're eating, the type of exercise that you're doing, et cetera, really is all a function of, of trying to get you prepared for the best night of sleep possible. Yes. My entire life is about sleep. So when people say like, <laughs> if I could just do the sleep yeah. part of Blueprint, yeah. this is why I say it's a Trojan horse yeah. because in order to get a 100% sleep score every single day, you actually have to do every other thing in the Blueprint protocol yeah. to yeah, achieve that. Exactly. You're, 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 exa <laughs> you're exactly right. There was this uh, reporter that wrote an article recently for GQ. I was at this anti-aging conference uh -huh. and uh, this person who interviewed me said, you know, like, what is the number one thing you do for, you know, anti-aging. And this reporter, like, she told the story, like, so people are there, like, listening, like, what's Brian Johnson going to say about this thing? Is he going to say, like, some peptide or, you know, sauna or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. protocol? And then he says, sleep. And she said, then, like, the crowd just has this collective, like, sigh of disappointment. <laughs> right, because it's much sexier to talk about rapamycin. Yeah. Whether that was true or not, but she was just like, everyone is so disappointed with my response. But, you know, like, I don't know how to communicate more that like, everything revolves around sleep. Nothing changes existence more than sleep. You have more willpower. You have more zest for life. You have more energy. Yeah, I just, everything falls apart without sleep. Mm. I don't know how to communicate any better. Yeah, and when people want to hear you elaborate on that, the focus tends to be on the blackout curtains and yeah. the type of sheets and the air purifier that you have in the room and the temperature of yeah. the room. And yeah, those yeah. are all fine and well and important and play their part. But 
to really appreciate it, you have to you have to actually embrace the entirety yeah. of the program. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think we're all competing for status and power in society, you know, like in all of our own little circles and mm-hmm. places. And there's so much mythology caught up in the hero being sleep deprived and sleeping under the desk and going days without sleeping. It's so built into the psychology that people are trying to signal to others I'm worthy of being respected. I'm worthy of this status. I'm worthy of being admired. I'm worthy of this mythology. So they're doing things to play the script because they think it generates the respect of others. And in their mind, they may believe it too. Like this is how genius is achieved. You know, I can think of so many examples of people who've done this. And so it's so deep in our psychology that sleep deprivation is somehow positive that that's what stops most people from adopting it. That hustle porn culture and notion of sleep is in its twilight. Like, I feel like I that, yeah. we've really gone yeah. a long way towards yeah. raising awareness around I agree that. that. Like, that's shifted a lot, even in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. I think. I concur. Yeah. Yeah. Just even like when I talk to my friends, like, they'll come to me and say, like, I want this so badly. We have to engage in a therapy session where I'm like, what's up? How's it going? And then we dig into the deep into their psychology. And they uncover and unravel that they really are trying to be on mythology level with Mm. their levels of accomplishment. Now, it takes a lot of vulnerability for the person to be that honest. But like once we do that in private and they're like, oh, my God, this is totally unnecessary. I can achieve my objectives of ambition and status and power and wealth and success. And I don't have to do this sleep deprivation thing. And it's so liberating for them. They actually become better at their craft. But it's not obvious. Like it's on the surface, it's very, very hard to see that you're playing out scripts, which goes back to the first thing we talked about. What fishbowl are you in right now? We're all in fishbowls. Which one are you in? You're playing out the scripts of other people. You mm-hmm. don't realize it, but that you're owned by it. Mm-hmm. Whatever I'm trying to create and share with the world is only as valuable as the extent to which I suffered to create it, mm. which leads to unhealthy choices around rest and recovery yeah, and yeah. self-care. Huh. And it's very difficult to break that delusion. Yeah. You acknowledge this in yourself. Sure. Interesting. But as they say in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, self-awareness will avail you nothing. Like mm-hmm. having a self-awareness around mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean you're making a modification to that behavior. Yeah. I could really benefit from outsourcing a lot of what my mind is telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. I just do it with other humans. Yeah. You know, yeah. my super intelligence is a panel of people who keep me on track, right? And there's a democratic aspect yeah. of that. Yeah. Like, I don't want my brain to be a monarch. Yeah. I create, you yeah. know, a, a Congress yeah. of yeah. people who are smarter than I in various areas of life from relationships to athletics to diet, nutrition, whatever it is, you know, and this podcast is also an experiment of that. Like I invite people on who know things that I don't and I learn from them and they become people in my life that I can call upon to run my decisions by. But, you know, it's really through pain and suffering that I got to a place of willingness to submit to that, to disabuse myself Mm -hmm. of the notion that my instincts are are guiding me appropriately and to develop the humility to allow other people yeah. to weigh in on my yeah. decisions. It's amazing. Like you basically, you're doing this in your life already. You're building systems of intelligence that are superior to native abilities. So if another human is better at doing a given thing than you, you adopt that. Mm-hmm. 
or if you run that decision by a panel of people right. and there's a consensus, yeah, then that's probably a good uh, metric. Yeah. So like we're all playing this game today already. Like we're already continually in this game of up-leveling our systems of intelligence. Everyone's trying to be their best self. And that's just, we're just going to do more of the same in the future. So when we talk about AI, it does seem very jarring and new and different, but it's actually no different than what we do already today. We're just taking these baby steps. When you're in the panel of getting opinions, if you find a superior way of reasoning through a problem, you adopt it, right? It overrides your conscious mind. Your mind's like, actually, it's better. Mm-hmm. So you're already doing it. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. Yeah. 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 Not always. It's like, yeah, I know I should do that, but I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. You know, how many times are you going to bang your head against the wall? Yeah. You know, which is why pain can be such a powerful signal. Yeah. Because sometimes you have to be in pain to see another way. Yeah. So like me individually, I view my current self not living for me right now. I view me as in service of my future self. So I imagine like Brian who lives mm-hmm. in, who exists in the year 2050, where superintelligence is omnipresent, whatever that thing is, I am in service of that Brian. I want that Brian to have that experience more than anything else, more than me having a temporary pleasure right now, more than me acquiring something. I really view myself in service of my future self because now if we didn't exist in this time and age, I lived in the 1800s, I wouldn't have thought like that. I would have been like the omnipresent, this is the only moment that matters. But this is the first time it's ever happened in history. Like basically things are changing so fast that our future self could be unrecognizable from our current selves. That's Mm. never been the case. That's a practice though that is counter to human intuition. Like humans are not very good about thinking about or forecasting into the future. I mean, if we were, listen, heart disease kills most people, right? That's, That's the number one killer. So if we really thought about our heart health or we cared about what we would be experiencing in our 70s, when we are in our teens and our 20s, we would not be eating foods that are bad for our heart. But that's not the way that our society is oriented. And it's not really the way our minds work. Like tell a teenager that he needs to be concerned about something that's going to happen to him when he or she is 70 years old and they will dismiss you immediately. Exactly. Exactly. Talk about your approach to nutrition calorically and, you know, how you make all of this work. Yeah, I brought you some food. Oh, you did? Good. I did. Do we want to do that? Yeah. Should we bring so that out? I'll, yeah, let's get you some food and I'll tell you how it came about. Cool. Okay, cool. This is the Just Nutty, right? Yeah. Yes. We have strawberries. Raspberries. Have raspberries and... Macadamia nut, walnuts. Oh, macadamia nuts and walnuts. Black seeds. That's some pea protein. Mm-hmm. Make sure you stir it up a little bit. Yeah. It can get caught in the throat otherwise. Pomegranate juice. Oh, sunflower lechon. Yeah, it's quite good. And is this what you would eat as your first meal? Or is this more like a dessert? That's number two. Number two. Yeah, I eat vegetables for breakfast. That's great. The origin of this, we... We pose the question, if the body could speak, what would it ask for? Mm-hmm. And that's what we've done. So this, is, this diet is 2,250 calories, and every calorie has had to fight for its life. Everything we have has a clinical endpoint. We measure it. If it's doing its job, great. If it's not, it's replaced. We try to justify the presence of every single thing. 
Well, if you think longevity experts disagree, the world of nutrition, <laughs> if it's anything, it's a shitstorm yeah. of people arguing with each other yeah. about, you know, what's in our best interest yeah. from a health perspective. So good luck trying to find consensus there. But the truth is, if you really look at the science, there's more agreement than it would appear yeah. if you're like in the kind of nutrition ecosystem of social media. Mm -hmm. How did you arrive at these meals and these recipes and these types of foods as the things that are going to advance your goals? All of it's based upon gold standard scientific evidence. We looked at every single lifespan and health span study ever done. We prioritized each one according to its effect size. We looked at each one using 15 biostatistical criteria. And so we tried to assess what evidence can we trust the most. Mm -hmm. And then we started implementing it and then we would measure my body simultaneously. Here's my starting point. Here's after, you know, a month of adherence, three months, six months. And we just repeat that loop again and again. And so the most compelling thing about Blueprint is I now have my three-year results. You know, I have hundreds of biomarkers. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, my speed of aging is slower than 97% of 46-year-olds, slower than 80, I think 88% of 18-year-olds. My cardiovascular capacity is the top 1.5% of 18-year-olds. My bone mineral density, total bone mineral density is in the top 0.02% of 30-year-olds. So, mm. And there's like a dozens more of those markers. So even if a critic wants to say, ah, I don't believe in total bone mineral density because of blank, 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 you still have to knock off the chart a few of the dozen markers. The aggregation or the accumulation of all of these markers taken together. It is the most robust outcome in history. No one has ever put together this level of measurement, this level of rigor, and this level of evidence. Never. Mm. And so let's just say in a few years' time, we blow past this and we have far superior models, which would be the best thing. This is still in the world right now where no one can agree on anything. And people just wanted the, the simple answer, what do I have for breakfast or what can I eat for lunch? I've given them an answer. The first time in human history where someone can say, here you go. Mm. So you eat three meals a day, the final meal, dinner time, is at 11 a.m. 11 a.m. Yeah. is the last food that you intake for the day. Yeah. Why so early? Sleep. See, if I am hungry at night, I yeah. have a hard time sleeping. Yeah. This is my big problem, Brian. Yeah. Okay, so cool. So I always try to be very cautious and say, okay, I do this, but like mm -hmm. you do you and like maybe Yeah, I want to get into the N of one versus what is universal here. Yeah, exactly. So I yeah. always try to be like, look, for me, I tried that out. This is the result of hundreds of different uh, trials. But like you do you, maybe you're different. Everybody around me that has tried this has come back to the earlier they eat, the better they sleep. I don't have a single example of someone who eats late and still nails their sleep. Wow. You may be the first person that, you know, that does it. I doubt it. It's discomfort. You know, I, yeah. it's just like anything. You know, when you break a bad habit, it's uncomfortable and you fight against it mm -hmm. and you resist it and then you acclimate to it and then you're glad you did and life is better. Yeah, my, my son, so my 17-year-old, my 16-year-old started this. He went through a year of trialing this. You know, and like when you're 16, mm -hmm. your metabolism is just jamming. Sure. And so he experiences intense hunger pains. And so he really struggled because six or seven were all around. He'd be like just dying. And so he has been working on that. And lo and behold, he's found out the earlier he pushes that, the better his sleep gets. Wow. So he's just had to negotiate it. But again, like I'm 
totally open to other people having different routines. It's just everyone around me has slowly migrated back. And it's really my resting heart rate. Okay, a few things. Like if I, right before I go to bed, if my resting heart rate is about 46, mm-hmm. I'm almost guaranteed a perfect night's sleep. Like really strong REM, really strong deep, very little light, no alcohol. And I've had you know 30 to 60 minutes to wind down. Mm-hmm. I can't go straight from hard charging work right. to hitting the pillow. I have to have some separation to get my nervous system calmed down. If I can get a few of those things in place, like like clockwork, perfect sleep. It's amazing. Wow. Do you ever just lay in bed starving though? No, I'm pretty accustomed to it now. Yeah. I think in the early days, mm-hmm. I really had to wrestle with that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've, I've normalized to it. 2,250 calories a day. That number was identified because it is an adequate amount of calories while running a 10% caloric deficit every single day. So you're eating 10% less than your body's physical needs every single day. Mm -hmm. So what is the thinking behind that? Yeah, so there's reasonable evidence around caloric restriction. Uh, It's not a solved topic. It's suggestive that it may be good for you and uh, may extend life and health span. So we do adopt it. Initially, it was on 20%. I got too skinny. Mm-hmm. I lost too much weight, so we I've bumped it up. I've seen some of those videos. Yeah. yeah. You were looking pretty gaunt for a <laughs> yeah. minute there. Yeah. It's pretty fun to look back now. I mean, I've been like five different humans yeah. in this three years. I look you back. You had the long hair with the braid. You had like, you know, like, yeah, it's like interview with a vampire. Yeah. That's the clickbait YouTube title for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even I look at myself, I'm like, who is that guy? You know, it's uh-huh. like I'm so different than I was before. Yeah, but so the, the 22250, uh, what we found, uh, interestingly, is we have my speed of aging measured almost monthly for the past two years. And the speed of aging clocks are just getting better and better at, uh, we now have a 16 organ uh, clock, which just outperformed a bunch of others. But we saw that when I changed from 20% caloric restriction to 10 it didn't change my speed of aging. Mm. So we didn't achieve benefits on that marker. Now, that's not to say that we had benefits we didn't get for the heart and the lungs because we're looking at the whole body. But we think that 10% caloric restriction is basically we get the best of it without having to go too far. You're confident in the accuracy of these biological clocks because I've heard a lot of kind of grousing around yeah. around whether these are reliable indicators of anything. The skepticism is absolutely valid. Phenotypic markers are much better. They're gold standard. Mm -hmm. These clocks are still silver standard. Absolutely true. We trust them increasingly more because the patterns we see there match with other phenotypic markers. So we're building our internal models. But on their own, I agree out of the gate, skepticism is warranted. Uh, With these new generation clocks coming out now, uh, they're getting better and better. So we make sense of uh, our protocol when we put together imaging, MRI, ultrasound, fitness tests, phenotypic markers, DNA methylation, you know, microbiome, we put them all together and we piece the puzzle together, then we trust it. But we don't have over-reliance on one test. The most reliable clock then says you are how old? All in. Yeah, we don't trust the age ones. We trust the speed of aging more than the others. In other words, looking at a certain system and saying, this is operating in the way that a 20-year-old yeah. system would operate. Yeah. Engaging age based upon data sets from people of varying ages. That's right. Yeah. If you look at my blood markers, my blood markers and my 18-year-old blood marker, my 18-year-old, were about identical. Like you mm-hmm. can't really tell the difference between us. If you put him in an MRI and me in an MRI, 
his heart is definitely 18 and my heart is definitely not 18. Mm -hmm. So some things are very obvious in the difference in the comparisons. And so this is why measurement has been the most important part of Blueprint is when you don't have measurement, anybody's opinion is equally weighted. When you have ground truth with measurement, it dramatically simplifies the conversation to say, well, here's the data. But you have to have repeated measurement over certain durations of time. You have to have the rigor for certain controls. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've tried to do is structure this in a way where we can punch through the endless debate and say, like, here's, here's a starting point for us to have a discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in whether you're in a place where you feel like you can extrapolate upon the data that you've accumulated with respect to yourself to speak more broadly about how it's might be universally understood because yeah. I have this like internal dialogue around the protocol, which is on the one hand, like I should do this. I can mm. do this. Mm. Like, mm. look what's happening here. Like, why wouldn't you do this? Mm. And then on the other hand, this other story that loops in my mind, mm. which is you might be past the point of no repair. Like I was very hard huh. on my body mm. for a very mm. long time. I treated my body very poorly substances, terrible lifestyle habits, you name it, like yeah. I've done it. And then even as a healthier person, mm. as an athlete, like I've pushed my body really hard mm. and I've done great things as an athlete, but that training and that racing was not consistent with longevity, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of priorities, yeah. right? Like I may have harmed myself yeah. beyond the point of no repair. Yeah. At what point in terms of arresting the aging process, slowing it, we're not even talking about reversing it, Yeah. do you have a sense of, of when it's too late? Obviously, if somebody who's 90 is yeah. adopting the blueprint protocol, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, yeah. you know, it's unlikely to be successful yeah. in preventing them from dying, of course, but even maybe at aging, because that ship has sailed. Mm -hmm. I am racing for my parents to stay alive. So they both joke with me where a new package from me arrives at their house every day and it's a new mm -hmm. thing to do or a new thing to implement. You know, my mom would be like, Brian, I just, I can only do so many things. <laughs> so you need to tell me what to do. But I think we should fight for our lives. All of us. And you know, my dad is 70. He went on Blueprint and he called me one day. He said, Brian, I want you to know something really important. When you start experiencing cognitive decline, you don't know it. I thought I would know it. Mm. Like, hey, I'm slipping. You don't. He said, since I've been doing Blueprint, I've come back and I'm aware of some loss. I will do anything to keep my mind. As a 46-year-old, I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. I can imagine what it might be like to be on the situation where you're potentially losing your mind. But we did a plasma exchange. You know, my son gave me one liter of plasma. Mm -hmm. I gave my dad one liter of plasma. Yeah. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people had a lot of things to say about that. <laughs> Page six, you know. No, uh, no tabloid refused the opportunity to yeah. put some ink to that yeah. story. So I did five liter, five one liter uh, infusions myself from a 20-year-old donor, then one from my 17-year-old. So I got six total. And we've yet to be able to identify the benefit of doing that. Maybe with better tools, we'll, we'll be able to tease it out. We just can't see it now. However, when my father took out 600 milliliters of his plasma and took in one liter of mine, his speed of aging lowered by 13%. Wow. 
What? And it stayed that way for it stayed that way for six months. His last measurement was done just two two weeks ago. So we're doing a more comprehensive analysis on this, but it was one of the most significant intervention outcomes that this company had seen. One time of my superplasma. One plasma transfusion. Yeah. So like it's an open How many liters? One liter. One One, liter. Yeah. One liter of my superplasma. But like, okay, so, but there's a question. So was it because he took 600 milliliters of his out or was it because he had one liter of mine in? We don't know. We haven't Mm -hmm. done the experiment. So there's a lot of questions still though. The results are are solid. Like he's done multiple measurements before, multiple measurements afterwards over a six month period of time. So we trust the data at this point. And so for me, are you past the point of no return? No, like no one is, no matter where you're at. Hmm. If you look at the time span, like this line straight up on how fast we're moving our intelligence, I don't think there's any reason anybody should give up hope. All of us. I have this thing that like, I'm going to decline or die right on the precipice of all these yeah. breakthroughs that are going to extend health span, you know, by decades. Yeah. Like the last generation to do it old school. Yeah. I just wrote a book and then my author's bio, I wrote that I died in the year 2478 by the last bus in operation on planet Earth weeks before. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, it would be such a shame if like some accident happens to you with yeah. all of the effort that's going into this and, yeah. and you know, you just walk out onto, I don't know, Lincoln or something like yeah. that and get yeah. hit by a car. If we're being sober about this, isn't that inevitable? If that didn't happen, would the universe be true? Do all things not end in irony? Mm-hmm. And so am I destined for some silly death? Most likely. Probably. Most likely. Right, yeah. And is it going to be the most humorous version? Probably. Right. Is it going <laughs> to give people endless thrills on the internet? Most likely. <laughs> yeah. You know? like Yeah, that is the most <laughs> likely outcome. Yeah. yeah. But to like already embrace that, like makes it less ironic, I suppose. I mean, it just yeah. is. It, it, right. we're like we look at history, it's just life is irony. Yeah. Back to the food for a minute. So one thing about your protocol is it's entirely plant-based. You've you've done this by choice, but yeah. what is your reason for being 100% plant-based? I hope that compassion is a scaling law of intelligence. So evolution created us, we are creating superintelligence, and as we do that, I hope that compassion is a fundamental tenet of this intelligence uh, for our own sake. I hope that that, mm-hmm. that compassion's sake. I think that if we can figure out how to achieve our objectives with greater compassion, we all win a much bigger prize. Yeah. Obviate the unnecessary suffering. And for you to be thriving and doing what you're doing, you know, in your gym and, you know, displaying the biomarkers and the blood markers that are demonstrating transparently, you know, how your body is responding to these types of foods. I think that's a really powerful message to the person who believes or is deluded into the idea that if you want to be strong and vital, that you have to eat animal products. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, I guess what I'm, I really believe is we need to be what we want AI to become. And we will build AI with all of our biases. If we're basically living a life of accelerated disease, decay, and death, we're going to build that into AI, whether we realize it or not. It goes back to what you're saying of like, are we going to build a dystopic future? Mm -hmm. We really need to be that thing before we build it. And that's why I, I want this don't die revolution 
to become a, a global revolution that consumes the earth in like six months, like not a 10-year time frame, that we as a species, it just snaps and we're like, it's time, it's going to move. And it happens faster than anyone thinks is even possible. And I think that there's a possibility that could happen. We currently think of like a revolution like this, like so far away and there's so many barriers. As you see AI advance and it starts posing these really tricky problems of who are we? What do we do? How do we structure society? Like, what does it mean to exist anymore? It's going to force us to find new games to play, new status, new power, right? All these new things. And if we can redirect it towards something positive, like don't die, we still get to play our games. And that's what I'm hoping happens is you've got this inversely related structure and I hope it loops back into humans. For the meat thing, I really don't get into the, the war of meat. Like mm -hmm. I don't get into the war of anything. I'm basically just trying to say we need to build a new system of intelligence and let's just follow the evidence and the data. And if we can do so with, with compassion, we're all going to win in this new world we're building. Mm. Of course, the other piece here is all the supplements you take. Yeah. 110 Ish. capsules yeah. a yeah. day. Yeah. Some of them are things we've all heard of. Some of them are are things we haven't. I'm interested in what you've played around with that you found that you thought would work that didn't work, and how you came up with this you know incredibly elaborate long mm. list of mm. things that you take every single day. Mm. Let me think. I guess a way into that is to ask. What percentage of all of these supplements are safety gaps because yeah. you're running a caloric deficit mm. and your kind of profile mm. of nutrition is mm. relatively limited that mm -hmm. you're making sure you're meeting all of your needs yeah. versus supplements that are oriented around, you know, kind of progressing this health span yeah. aspect of what you're doing? Yeah. We've tried to build the perfect diet. Again, if you just ask the body, like, hey, body, speak, tell us what you need to be your best self, mm. give us your, your recipe list. That's what we've tried to do with diet and supplements. And we've really taken a hands-off approach, just like measure the whole body. Okay, so how are you doing liver? Like, where are your enzymes? Let's image you. How are you doing with, with fat, iron, stiffness? We look at all these parameters and say, okay, what does the evidence say on iron and stiffness and enzymes? And we take the evidence and we say, well, you know, like, here's the following panel that makes sense for the liver to be optimal. We do the same thing for the heart and for the lungs and everything else. And then that's what generates the list. Mm. And so we implement the protocol. We measure again and again and again. And we're like, well, like, okay, liver enzymes on point, cardiovascular ability on point. And so every single thing. And so sometimes there's a multifaceted approach, like, you know, garlic, like, you know, does a bunch of things for mm -hmm. inflammation and other things like that. So it's hard to pinpoint one thing for a one-to-one -one relationship. It's really multifaceted. But every single thing has a destination. Every single thing is measured. And if it doesn't, justify its existence, it's out. In the measuring process and in the testing process, though, you have to really be careful about the variables that yeah. you're introducing, right? Because you're doing so many different things. Yeah. You get a test result. How are you supposed to know what that is correlated to? Yeah. It could be a new supplement that you're taking. It could be the fact that you tried a new exercise in the gym or you put a red light yeah. helmet on for a little bit longer. Yeah. Or, you know, you're doing a lot of things. So yeah. how do you track that? Yeah, you're exactly right. We've stacked several things. Like going back to the speed of aging, what we saw recently is, so we did a dastatinib and quercetin cycle. That's uh, a combo to get rid of senescent cells. So it's 50 milligrams of dastatinib, which is a drug used for leukemia. 
mm-hmm. did 500 milligrams of quercetin, and you do it three days in a row for three months. And the tools to measure senescent cells are not great, right? So like we have some primitive ways of doing it, but we're not really happy with it. But one thing we did see was it dramatically increased my speed of aging. So the therapy, mm-hmm. even though you're trying to clear senescent cells in that clock, there was an increase in speed of aging. And the same thing happened. We were trying to regenerate my thymus. And so I was doing HGH, uh, 0.6 milligrams, five days a week. We did achieve a seven-year age reduction of my thymus, looking at fat fraction. We did three different MRIs, uh, which we feel okay about. We're not terribly confident. It's kind of a new area, but still interesting. That also dramatically increased my speed of aging. And so I use those two examples to say that we are trying many things, but what's cool is when we're doing HGH or the dystatin and quercetin, they are isolated in the therapy windows, and we can see what happens to phenotypic markers. We can see what happens to measurement markers. We can see what happens to speed of aging. The measurement robustness gives multiple angles to slice it up and say, interesting. Mm. Same thing with plasma. And so this is why I think the data we have on me is so interesting is it's a more comprehensive view of any human in history. And even though it's not perfect, definitely some limitations and definitely some crossover and definitely some compound and confounds, like sure, true, also better than anything in history. Hmm. As this continues to develop and you add and subtract, you know, from this equation, there must be situations where there are compromises that you have to make because, yes, you could take this supplement and it has this positive benefit, mm-hmm. but it also has a slight negative benefit mm-hmm. on this other thing. Mm-hmm. But if you combine it yeah. with this, you know, it makes it better or worse. Like yeah. these things, they don't function in isolation, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. They all have like sort of, they're all dependent upon each other and how they interact with yeah. each other. And yeah. what might be good for one system has a deleterious impact on yeah. some other system. So it's really about how they all work together and what the net effect of yeah. that is. And that's got to be a very complicated yeah. computation. What a fantastic question. Amazing. Uh, so there's uh, like a pretty large segment of society that you know that observes this thing and they'll be like- Let me just do what he's doing. Well, right? well they'll, they'll say like, you're so white, you must be unhealthy. You know, it's like, like you're so pasty, <laughs> you must be unhealthy. Or they'll say like, your facial fat volume is not high enough, you must be unhealthy. So there's like this- general perception of like, I don't know, they use their eyes and they're trying to do it. That's like one layer. Another layer is you start looking at all the data and you get in there. Mm. I think what's interesting is aging is a game of whack-a-mole. So we do the dystatinib and quercetin to get rid of my zombie cells and it raises my speed of aging. It increases it, right? Bad situation. We do the HGH to try to regenerate my thymus. It does it, but it raises my speed of aging. So exactly what you said is it's a whack-a-mole. So what is so cool about what we've accomplished is even in this game of whack-a-mole where you do one positive thing and then a negative thing happens, we've been able to achieve elite level of muscle and fat and cardiovascular and speed of aging and, 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 and just goes on and on. Like we've optimized for like 20 things that compete with each other. Because it's not like you just do one thing and the whole body is like, great. It's a trade-off space and it's very complicated. And that's what I think like almost no one gives us props for having optimized for all those variables at the same time. It's really the conversations like he looks pasty, therefore this must be a bad situation. And so it just doesn't translate, not yet. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be cool if those who can observe it would speak up because people are trying to make sense of it. They have no idea if this is legitimate or not, or like if we should talk about it. 
but I think it's the most impressive thing ever done. Have you had some of these longevity doctors reach out to you to <laughs> solicit their input or to be criticized? Yeah. Like, what has that been like? Yeah. Recently, a, a Time Magazine article that was written interviewed several longevity experts, and they all dunked on me. And their argument was? Yeah, so uh, near Barzelli, uh, he made the comment. I went to a, a conference and he said, Brian showed up, he didn't look very healthy. We were all kind of concerned about him. Then another, Eric Verdon said something like, this idea of going after uh, the aging being something we can go after. I forget the exact quote, but like a little bit of a dunk on the endeavor. And then the other gentleman who runs the USC School of Gerontology. I forget his name right now. You have to take this in context because the reporter wants to create the conflict. So she's trying to drum up the conflict. So it's not entirely fair to say that they only said these things. It's probably only true to say that she took the things that they said that created the, the sharpest contrast and most conflict. So it's not entirely fair to say these mm -hmm. things, but still they said enough to dunk on me, which is interesting. And it's totally expected in a field that uh, is like this, you're going to have a variety of different opinions expected. And that's their job is to be skeptical. It's their job to uh, raise questions others haven't. So it's fine. It's to point out that it's definitely not like we're riding into the world of anti-Asian and people are like, amazing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's met with quite a lot of resistance uh, mm -hmm. because it's their domain of expertise. And so, and it's fruitful and it's productive. That's a very healthy relationship to criticism, I think, and a mature one. I think the difference is you are, you know, not only using yourself as the guinea pig, you're approaching this holistically by exploring every aspect of what it means to live in the world and what would need to be done to kind of take out this insurance policy mm -hmm. on extending your life versus slides under a microscope in a lab yeah. studying sirtuins and certain, you know, physiological pathways, all of which is great and fine. But I think within the scientific community, there's a sense that the solution will be found in solving a very particular, like, biochemical pathway as opposed to reorienting not only every lifestyle habit, yeah. <laughs> but also your whole mindset around how you interface with the world, think about yourself and think about the future of the planet and humanity, mm -hmm. which is yeah. you know, kind of like what you're doing, yeah. right? It's a different way into the same field, yeah. I guess. You're exactly right. We are actually working on different problems. Blueprint appears as if we're trying to solve aging. It's not true. I'm trying to solve for don't die as a species. I'm trying to solve for at the highest possible level. Like if we just take stock of where we're at, we're in a dicey situation with our biosphere, right? Like how serious is our climate situation right now? We don't know. We have no clue. We don't know what the compounded effects are going to be. We don't know how catastrophic it could become and how fast. We saw COVID leveled us as a species. And we're walking into this catastrophic climate situation like I don't know. This is like a level of insanity. So we have that going on. We have weapons that we can annihilate each other with. Our fingers are on the trigger. Kind of scary. And we're building AI of like this total unknown of what this thing could be. We have really, really significant challenges in front of us. And I'm trying to say, if we size up the situation that after 13.8 billion years, 
we're conscious and we're here and we have a chance to create this remarkable existence. Let's try to get our stuff together a little bit, sober up in this moment and actually create something spectacular. And so that's the game I'm trying to play. And it all hinges upon this one philosophical thing of don't die. If I can demonstrate with Blueprint that maybe there's a chance that we could you know, radically extend our lifespans, it might be enough to shift the zeitgeist and snap it and say, you know what? We're in. We're going to play the game. Don't die. Because if death is no longer inevitable, everything about our reality is going to change. Everything about how we think is going to change. Everything is going to change about our existence. And it can happen so fast. How do you scale this N of one into a broader movement? Yeah. I, I assume that's why you put yourself out there and you're doing podcasts, yeah. et cetera. Because, you know, driving all the way over here and driving back, it's not an ideal way to be living your blueprint protocol lifestyle. Yeah, a few things. Over the past few months, we've taken blueprint and we've put it, we made it into a product. And so when I first started this thing, it was really explore the scientific frontiers. I did it for two years. No one cared. Then there was this article in Bloomberg. It kind of blew up and it's just kind of taken on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. And the most common response I hear is make it easy to do. Like right now, it's so unapproachable. It's not doable. It's too extreme. I can't do it. So it just doesn't feel like it's actually doable by anybody. Some people do it, but like, you know, it's it's tough. So people have said, make it easy. So we spent the past um, eight months now building out this product. And we're going to launch it in 60 days. So it's going to compete for the uh, calorie for calorie, dollar for dollar, the most nutritious food program ever built in history. So pre-packaged meals, food delivery, what is it? There'll be extra virgin olive oil. Uh, it will be pills, powders, drinks, foods. So basically all in one, just yeah. we'll ship it to you and you just eat exactly. this and consume these Exactly. Things. We're going to say like, we're going to pack your lunch. Mm-hmm. Don't trade with the other kids. Right. So, but like, you know, like we're trying to like, we got you. And so the starter kit, we have about a thousand to 1200 calories a day, which we take care of. The person's left with having to solve for about a thousand a day. We have some fast follow on products afterwards that will solve for the whole day. And what we're trying to say is we've got you and we're going to give you the most nutritious thing you could ever possibly imagine. And we're going to do so at a cost that's going to be cheaper than what you're doing right now. We're going to actually save you money. And so I think I love this because if you look at technological progress over the past few decades, all the focus has been on computers and the internet and the marvel of all this stuff. Meanwhile, we've been martyrs for this progress. Meanwhile, we've continued to age and die as we've always have. We get worse, in fact. Like the situation is not great with our mental health. Where are the societal scale human improvement projects? And I think this is this is one. Uh, this is like we are full on going to change the landscape of how we deal with nutrition. Now, getting nutrition like done right is the great first step. But we want to revolt against this culture of self-destruction that's fast food and junk food and all these self-destructive behaviors. So we're excited about that. We think it really is like the revolution is in these daily things we do, what we put in our body. And there's nothing more intimate than what you put in your body. Right. That's a good way of scaling because I think it does speak to the average person who maybe watched a YouTube video or two of yours and is overwhelmed. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah. look, I just, you know, yeah. just tell me what to eat. <laughs> I know, you know, totally. like, and that gets into the problem, however, of 
what is N of one versus what is responsibly extrapolated yeah. from this protocol. Yeah. And there's only so much, right? And so maybe it is in the three meals a day that, you know, there's some universality to that, but then it gets dicey yeah. in terms of supplementation yeah. and all these other things that you go into. But yeah. one thing I would say, which I should have said at the outset, is that in furtherance of this discussion around transparency, like the Blueprint website, it's all there. Like, and you've organized it in a way that makes it very easy to kind of understand what you're doing. You just list it all out. Here's everything I do every single day. Here are the recipes. This is the caloric breakdown. Here's every single supplement and they're hyperlinked to Amazon so you can just you know yeah. get them. Yeah. And here's my exercise routine. And here's the video where I go through the whole, like, all of it. Here's my nighttime routine. Here's my dental, like my hair rejuvenation routine, my skincare routine. Like it's all there. Yeah. So we don't have to canvas all of that in today's conversation. Yeah. That would actually be kind of a boring yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is more philosophical, <laughs> yeah. which gives you a context for the why, which I think is really important because the what doesn't really mean anything yeah. unless you really understand the why. Yeah. But this is all a long-winded way of saying that I just, you know, I appreciate the transparency of it and the fact that it's all listed out there. And as I said to you at the beginning of the podcast, our Ellis Tyler is 28. He's been having a few health things that, mm. that have challenged him. And he's found a lot of solace and guidance in, in what you've shared. And it's interesting because like, I'm kind of a thing in the health world, right? Like, but you can't hear it. You know, it's like, sometimes you can't hear it from your parents. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and not for yeah. nothing, you're yeah. doing it next level anyway. So yeah. you're a better role model to him than I am by a long shot. But he's really been positively impacted by what you shared. And we've started preparing blueprint meals. And, you know, we've done, we've made a lot of changes in our home uh, for which you've, you've been responsible. Cool. So I just wanted to kind of publicly acknowledge that. And, you know, I think that it's really cool what you're doing. Like as resistant as I was initially when I was watching what was going on with you, I was like, who is this guy? He's a little bit weird. I don't understand <laughs> this. Like my whole tune has changed. I'm like, thank God he's doing it. Like you're sort of this modern day explorer, like an astronaut, you know, out there, like going places, you know, no one else is going and then reporting back like this worked, this didn't work. Oh, this is exciting, you know, and we can all join in and follow yeah. along in in real time. And I think that that is like a laudable investment of your time and resources for humanity. Thank you very much. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that kindness. Yeah, it is really cool. And I guess, you know, I'm not quite done. I, it sounded like I was finishing the podcast. I have yeah. a couple more things I want to yeah. ask you. I guess I'd be remiss in, in letting you go before asking, you know, what's on the horizon or what's the test that you're excited about that either doesn't exist yet or you're about yeah. to do or, you know, what is the kind of future, near future horizon that you're inching towards that you think might, make a difference in how you're interfacing with all of this. Yeah. I really have uh, moved on from the basics of the Blueprint Protocol because I think we've done a pretty good job mastering diet, sleep, exercise. And I really want to go after culture. Uh, so like, for example, last Saturday, I posted on social media, I'm doing a trail, a trail run. run. I'm doing a trail yeah, run. I saw that. Come join me. <laughs> yeah. And 11 people joined me. And we, we had a fantastic time. We became friends. Uh, we had a great conversation. It was really wonderful. We're all strangers to each other, but it was such a wonderful experience. And uh, having done that, I posted again on Wednesday, 
and uh, instead of capping it, because I capped it to a pretty small group, mm-hmm. we have like 150 people who've responded. Mm. And so tomorrow morning on this little teeny trail, we're going to go run together. And I've been thinking all week of like, what is the ritual we do together? Like I'm playing with this idea, like, you know, what coordinated movements we do together to feel bonded? How do we feel like we're in sync? How do we feel like we're a tribe? How do we feel like we're really into this? And like this don't die thing is like, it's real. And like, we, we feel each other's energy, but I'm really trying to go after being healthy is very hard. The pressures to do the self-destructive behaviors are so strong and you are at risk of losing friendships. You're at risk of being made fun of. You're at risk, like it's really painful to not do these things, to like not comply with them. There is a social cost. Huge. You're living your life at cross purposes with cultural norms. Exactly. And it, like nothing stings more than not being part of a tribe. Nothing hurts more than your friends rejecting you. Like it's awful. And so I'm wondering if I can start doing some cultural events, uh, like some parties and some runs and some things and convening people to say, you know what, you're not alone. We can do this together. We can derive strength from each other. I've written a book, Don't Die, which walks through this philosophical conversation. So it's almost like we had dinner together. I broke myself out into multiple characters and it's a dialogue between the characters about all these ideas. One character makes the argument of like, no way, free will is absolutely the way to go about doing things. I'm never going to relinquish the power of my mind. It's an awful idea. And the next Mm -hmm. character is like, just hold tight. Just like, listen to this idea just for a minute and breathe through it. And it just swings back and forth to try to capture the various perspectives of how people think about these ideas. Most people presume that large-scale societal change happens over some longer time horizon. I think it's really possible that this could happen faster than any of us imagined. And so I want to start laying the groundwork to say we can do this because as a species, we're kind of beat down. Do we really trust our institutions? Like we're at war with each other. Like social media is kind of awful. Like people are really ugly to each other. We say a lot of mean things. It's really hard to be healthy. I don't feel great. Like it's just really hard right now in society. And like in the same way we imagine unadulterated ambition for our technology can we start having that same aspiration for ourselves? Can we start feeling bullish about the future of being human versus like succumbing to AI and where it's going to be on universal basic income, but we're all useless? Like how do we create some grand vision for ourselves and motivate ourselves to build a spectacular future? We don't know what's in store for us, but why put our tail between our legs and why just mope into the future? And it's really missing. Like where's the gusto of being human? Where's our gusto of doing this? We love our technology. We worship our technology. We're willing to die for our technology. But where is that on the human side? Mm. That's where I want to focus because you diet gets you so far and sleep gets you so far. But like we need a game to play. We need to have a want to exist, like an absolute burning desire to exist. That definitely feels like it's lacking right now. And I think it speaks to just a general malaise fueled by a growing sense of disempowerment yeah. in our lives. Yeah. And perhaps that that speaks to the social constraints that we're unaware of that just drive us, you know, on trajectories that feel like were never our choice to begin with, mm-hmm. but which we've sort of been lured into. And with that, you know, the creeping, uh, you know, increase in mental health issues yeah. and the like, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, when you compare humanity to technology and we see all these advances and what we're able to do with tech, and then you look at humans and it's like a lot of mental health disorders, yeah. a lot of, you know, increase in unhappiness and, you know, people dying of all these chronic lifestyle mm-hmm. ailments. Like, yeah. And we're just, we're treating symptoms 
we're yeah. we're basically medicating people, yeah. but we're not really getting at the root cause of what's causing these diseases, let alone exploring the antithesis mm -hmm. of that, mm -hmm. which is optimizing health. Yeah. Right. In large part, that's because we don't have a system set up mm -hmm. that incentivizes mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So it requires not only outside thinking, but you know, really breaking the paradigm and creating a new paradigm. Exactly. And that's a lonely path that you're on. So exactly. it's not surprising that you're like, please come run with me on the trail <laughs> because I don't want to be the only person doing this. Yeah. And if there's anyone yeah. else out there that's yeah. doing it, yeah. they probably feel, yeah. you know, yeah. quite alone because, you know, you have a lot of support and resources that most people don't yeah. have. The framework that I like in understanding this is a concept called zeroism. And so first principle thinking is something a lot of people know about. You try to assume the fewest number of things in a given time frame. Sherlock Holmes is a first principle thinker. Dirk Gently, uh, he's a detective by Douglas Adams. He's a zeroth principle thinker where he arrives at the crime scene and he basically is trying to find what's impossible. So he's trying to find the unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. And so if you look throughout the history, the biggest discoveries that we've had, many of the most significant ones have been zeroth principle discoveries. For example, like the earth is not the center of the universe or special theory of relativity or that germs are the cause of infection or the vanishing point to allow 2D art and 3D perception. They're discoveries of unknown unknowns. So first principles thinking would be knowing the knowns. Yeah. And zeroism is figuring out how to know an unknown. First principle is that you've got puzzle pieces in front of you, and you're trying to figure out if there's a way to assemble this puzzle together in some cohesive, interesting way. And you're trying to avoid any assumption on top of that. Zeroism, you're trying to question, is there another dimension here I don't see? The application of zeroism to the notion of hellspan is what? First principles thinking is only so helpful in thinking about the future because we're up against this wall of fog with superintelligence. We can't see. We can't see past it. We can't predict how it's going to happen. Like when artificial intelligence played the game of AlphaGo and beat the world champion, least at all, it played moves in that game that stunned human genius. So human genius has been playing that game for thousands of years. You give that game to AI, and in a matter of days, it stuns human genius. From It just breaks mm -hmm. their brain. The moment you apply this superintelligence, computational intelligence, even its current form, not even, even future forms, it breaks humans' brains of what is actually genius, what is possible. And so our future is basically going to be a continuous stream of breaking our reality. Our realities have been broken in the past. Of like Earth is not the center of the universe. There's little tiny microbes cause infection. Einstein says, actually, Newtonian physics only you know, talks about these dimensions. There's another dimension. Whoa. But I mean, these breakthroughs are separated by decades exactly. and, centuries. and centuries, right? And, Whereas and, the accelerating rapidity of what is to come is staggering. Staggering. So I call this Gen Zero. And this is basically to say like, hey, everybody, we're right now in a moment where like the last moment where like things kind of have been how they have been, but they're about to change radically. And in this new future, we can't predict what's going to happen. We no longer have the ability. And so we're living in a zeroth world. And so Gen Zero is a group of multi-ethnic, multinational people who rise up 
and they say, we are willing to courageously step into the future. And we're willing to divorce or open to divorce from ourselves all human norms, all human customs, all human thought. And we're willing to say we're wide open about everything. Absolute blank slate. Now, that is impossibly hard to think about because we have the things we care about. We have our preferences. We have our beliefs. We have our wants. And to basically say we're open to this being a blank slate of existence is the most challenging thing one could ever do. I think this is why, on some degrees, I get so much flack. Like I think people kind of see this, where I'm, I'm proposing something that is so fundamentally offensive at every single layer of what it means to be human today. You take every single thing we, we consider to be sacred, and I'm challenging that head-on, and I'm saying it, the reality may be the exact opposite. Like the idea that one could possibly transcend every bias and every idea they have about the world and yes. themselves yeah. is, again, on some level, it, it it goes back to this Buddhist idea of oneness and, and of no mind, yeah. right? There yeah. is like, are psychedelics a part of this? Because it sounds like in order to inhabit yeah. a space of creating distance between yourself and your assumptions mm -hmm. and your biases requires, you know, some kind of fracture mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. to even approximate. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Buddhism is a really interesting example. If you look at ideologies that have emerged throughout history, you could almost look at the time and place the person emerged. So let's just take Buddhism. And if you look on the other side, what was the technology at the time and place? You could almost predict the ideological thing that would emerge. So in the time of Buddha, they didn't really have any technological abilities. The only thing you could do would be to close your eyes and meditate. You had no other abilities. And then we look at the, the rise of Islam and Christianity, you find this really compelling storytelling. Like, hey, there's mm -hmm. this omnipotent being. We have these rules. If we follow these rules, we get this prize. And that storytelling prevails for a few thousand years. But like, that was really the technology of the time. If you say right now, what is the technological ability and what does that mean for an ideology? You could almost map the ideology. And the ideology is zeroism. It's like it's, it's so predictable because no existing ideology in the world has anything meaningfully to say about this moment in time. Where are the major religions in offering us practical things about this moment on how to solve our biggest problems? Even with capitalism, like, hey, capitalism, what should we do with our major problems? How do you solve this? Even that, it, it just is too shallow. So where do we look for inspiration and structure to do it? And this is what I've been trying to fill with zeroism, like build out a philosophical structure. We can say, okay, like we can understand where we're at. These are practical steps we can follow. We can all cooperate around these mm -hmm. core ideas, but I'm trying to create the stableness of a foundation of how we think about and act in this highly uncertain situation we're in and build something as much as we can predict and control in the future of a world where you know it's built around this don't die and thriving. To what extent are you actually participating in the building of that? Like we've been talking about AI, you're an entrepreneur and you have a variety of companies that you've founded or are heavily invested in. Like, are you directly invested in this aspect of this future casting that we've been talking about? 
So I made a couple hundred million from Braintree Venmo. I've put everything into this. I've sunk all my money into it. And it would have been very easy to take that money and make a lot more money. You know, like if, if I could have just done just a normal business, mm-hmm. you know, like it's so easy to make money with money. And I really didn't think that was the right move. The objective was to change the trajectory of intelligence in this part of the galaxy and do something that matters a few hundred years from now, which says a lot right, with how much we're going to change. Like to be valued in the 25th century, like you've got to do something spectacular. And so this is really all poured into that singular objective of trying to do the one or two or three things in the century that moves the needle for the species. And I've been obsessed about this problem. It just has absolutely consumed me. Uh, I think about it nonstop. I feel like you should come up with a blueprint, like a literal blueprint for a home where the home is designed in a way that's conducive. Yeah to everything that you're talking about. Yeah, the systems I've been trying to build is putting myself in someone else's situation. I just want the food to arrive and I want instructions on what to do. And I want that to be solved. And then if I can start making small decisions on prioritizing my sleep and I start banging out 100% nights, I feel amazing about existence. Like if I can get those two things right, and then we can then add on some exercise, which is great, and you know something else. But just get people in a mindset where we say we want this, like we're up for it, we're down for it, let's go. But, like this is the thing. Like when I was depressed, you know, like, I really did want to end my life, like desperately wanted to commit suicide. I would have done it had it not been for my kids. And mm-hmm. so there's deep inside of me this imagination that we want to exist no matter what. Unconditionally, we want to exist. When I've tried to talk about this, I'm surprised at how much pushback I get where people are like, well, (laughs) and there's so many things they tell me of like why they don't want to exist. Like I would be bored or I I don't want to be blank or blank. There's so much resistance to living. And I wonder in the moment, again, if we're like homo erectus, like, if we really understood what it meant to exist in 20 years time, would we be like losing our minds of like, please exist. Like no matter what you do, please stay alive. Like, do we have any wisdom at all in this moment to speak for ourselves? And I don't think I do. And this is why I feel like I'm really in the service of my future self is I have no clue what I'm talking about. I just know I need to not die because this future thing is like, is the most remarkable thing to happen in history. Hmm. It must be hard for you to date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Would somebody have to be on the blueprint protocol? It would be too hard if they if they weren't. Yeah, I you know, I'm single. I really do want a partner. Uh-huh. And uh I guess I have to be like impossibly hard. Like I don't know. I, I just can't imagine anybody putting up with me. I just feel like I'm like intolerable on every front. Oh, like, that, makes I just me, break. that makes me sad to hear you say that. It's kind of true, right? Like you, you take me as like a, most people have expectations for what's reasonable in a relationship. And I think I just break almost everything. And so I don't know. It's just like uh, I've yet to find a situation where somebody would genuinely be happy with me. 
yeah, so it's a pretty complicated situation. Yeah. 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 There's a long list of things <laughs> that somebody would have to be on board with. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't eat after 11 and I'm in bed at 8.30 yeah. and there's no way you're sharing a bed with anyone. Like, yeah. Too big of a threat to the 100% streak. Yeah. You know, like there's a, a lot. There's it's a lot. Lo- it's a lot. It's a lot right? going on. And so- when you think of it in those terms and you're saying, hey, look, look how happy I am and here's what I'm doing. Like, you're never saying like, you should do this too. Like you're doing what we say in AA is attraction rather than promotion. Like you're trying to create an attractive model for what this might look like. But the ask is huge. And I think the social aspect of it looms much larger than, you know, the practical implications of the food that you're eating and the supplements you're taking and what time you have to go to bed. And that's really what comes into play in terms of mass adoption. Yeah. Maybe that's why we need to scale this because you need to find somebody to (laughs) to date, right? We got to grow the population for you for selfish reasons. I wonder, I I really, I, I spend almost zero time on dating. I wonder if I actually did spend time if what would come of it. But yeah, I, I genuinely want to be in a relationship. Hmm. My 18-year-old and I are like best friends. It's the best relationship. Does he I've had. date? Uh, he does, yeah. He does. Yeah. See, he can be the but model you know. for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the best relationship Until I've ever had in my time. Until you become 18. Yeah. Like he, yeah. He's, he's showing you how to be 18, right? So yeah. when you become 18 again, you can do what he's doing. I, honestly, <laughs> there's so much about that. Like I hang out with he and his friends and we have so much fun together. Like, uh-huh. We just do, we play like kids. It's never ending fun. It's like I love all my children, uh, obviously. We have that complication with our past with religion where like two of my children are kind of mm-hmm. like, yes, dad, we do love each other. Also kind of complex. So, and we openly acknowledge it and have that conversation. But my son and I, we just, pal around. We're just best friends. Like We do everything together. It's so fluid. Like We're just like one thing all the time. And it is the best relationship I've had in my entire life. And it is the most beautiful thing in the whole world. And so I guess I, I know what it feels like to be in this wonderfully beautiful relationship. And uh, I do want it. Just you know, It's complicated to be human. It's complicated to be in a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to hear that you have that relationship with him, but I'm I'm sorry to hear about the constraints with your other kids. That can't be easy. And as um, you know, it will change. Like kids change so fast. Yeah. So like it's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, fine. yeah. Time will tell. In seeing you, in watching videos w- w- with you interacting with Telmich, I have to ask this question, but I have to know, <laughs> I have to know if you've watched the TV series Foundation or yeah. if you read the book. Yeah. Because you realize, yeah, of course, that you are empire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That you and your son are the same person. Yeah. And that on some level, I have to think, like, even if it's unconscious, that you are striving to adopt the Lee Pace physiology because <laughs> that dude is ripped yeah. in that show and looks fantastic. Yeah. And it's just a series of of him at yeah. various ages. Yeah. Absolutely aware. Totally on board. Yeah. Am I the first person to point that out or has that been pointed out? It's pretty common, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm so, I'm I'm equally Patrick Bateman. Uh Uh-huh. You know. Yeah, there's a a little bit of that. Uh Uh, I get Dorian Gray a lot. I Mm. get uh, Elf Colin from uh, uh, Vampire, Edward Colin, Uh, Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a smattering of, of characters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You should make a video about that. I know you did the mean tweets video, but yeah. like all this sort of like uh, blueprint role models out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Role models. Yeah, I want to do a I want to do a Patrick Bateman morning routine. That's pretty funny. Yeah. 
Last thing before I let you go, you know, I feel like you've already kind of offered up some some pretty profound closing statements, but I think I just want to leave you with the opportunity to maybe share what what we haven't covered today that you want to leave people with in terms of of how to think about this and you know, feel free to correct the record on how you think you're misperceived in the media. Yeah. And really just the message that you want to speak to broadly about what you're trying to do and the world that you would like to see be created out of the seeds of your efforts. Yeah. So I guess first is I do keep my son in a dungeon in my basement. Yeah. (laughs) Unlike what media has reported. Just you guys in IV bags, you know, sucking each other's blood all day long in the dark. But unlike what media has reported, his room is not 10 by 10, it's 8 by 8. Mm. So correct that first. But then, thank you very much for having me. This was one of my most favorite conversations I've ever had. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel like you really went there emotionally with me. Like you, you did it all. Like you experienced the emotional arousal of being fundamentally challenged so deeply about everything who you are. And you were open to roll through it. And you were open to consider other ideas and perspectives. And I feel like this is was basically the same effect of us having dinner together. Or after this, we're going to hug. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know what, man? Like, we're good. We're friends. We're going to do life together. Like, I feel like we really connected, which was amazing. And that's not always the case. These are very hard conversations to have. So thank you for being such a generous host. You're welcome. And thank you. Yeah. So hi, friends. Uh, I hope this was useful. I would love to hear your perspectives in the comments. I do read the comments. I love to hear what how what you perceive. I also am always trying to get better. You can see that I I really am trying my very best to convey these complicated ideas. I know that sometimes uh, I can do a lot better. So I'd love to hear your suggestions on how we can do it. But I'd say above all, I hope that we as a species, that let me just make this more individual, that each one of you, so you and I can rise up and choose an existence that is potentially more spectacular than we can imagine. Like this moment is so special. It is no previous generation has ever had this opportunity. And I hope that we can be sober enough to capture it. And it's real. It's here right now. And we are not powerless against the world and all the things going on. We can rise up. And so I hope we can build a community on this and I hope we can take advantage of the opportunity. Uh, I think it really is the most spectacular thing to ever have happened to the human race. Beautiful, man. I really appreciate what you're trying to do. It takes a lot of, of courage and gumption, especially to so boldly live kind of outside the structures of, of social expectations. And you've sacrificed a lot to do this. So I think that speaks to you know, the authenticity of, of, of what you're trying to achieve. And I think beyond all the talk about super intelligence and, and AI, as I said earlier, like, I really do think that you feel deeply, you know, I think that maybe you don't even appreciate the extent to which the emotional piece of this is motivating you. And I would go so far as to suggest that that it's not the data and the numbers and the superintelligence and the AI, but it's truly your emotional connection to mm. what you're doing that is perhaps the underappreciated mm. 
superpower here that's operating. And um, I think it's profound, and I'm really glad that you're doing it. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for coming here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Very much. Yep. Yeah. And we're definitely going to hug it out. Yeah. And I want to <laughs> come to your house and see the whole deal. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, I hope you come by. And I think we should put together a dinner. I think we should love to. get a group Are of people. Are we doing it at 10 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> what time is dinner? Why don't we do it on a Saturday? We'll do it like at noon. Okay. Maybe we can do an activity before or after. Cool. But let's put together an amazing group. And we'll make, you know, new lifelong friends. Absolutely. I'd love to do it. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, cool. I mean that. I appreciate it. Yeah, great. Peace. Yeah. Lance. This episode was brought to you by Inside Tracker. Save 25% on all Inside Tracker tests with the code RICHROLL at insidetracker.com slash richroll. That's insidetracker.com slash richroll. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg. Graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.